get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Two outs, and here comes Mason Wynn. Playing shortstop, making his major league debut, and his first major league at bat, number zero, Mason Wynn. Little chopper hit toward third. That ball is going to be late at first. Infield hit for Mason Wynn. There's his first in the big leagues tonight. Well, there's a base hit for Wynn. That's the first one to the outfield for him, and it was smoked. He's got his first multi-hit game in the major leagues. Rounded toward the hole by Mendick. Great stop by Wynn. Shows off the rifle, but just a little too late. That is an arm. Oh, my. Mendick has an infield hit, but Mason Wynn just showed you his number one tool, and the fans here in St. Louis appreciate that. Yeah, I didn't think he was going to get to it, and then uh, I thought there was no chance of there being a play at first, and he did both. So He's electric. You know, as soon as that ball was hit, I, I knew he was going to get to it. I knew he was going to put a put a good throw on the base. Didn't quite have enough time. I mean, that dude, I mean, he showed off his arm tonight. He showed off his speed, his range, can swing it. I'm really excited to see what that kid can do. That's what it sounded like over the weekend as Mason Wynn had his major league debut for the St. Louis Cardinals. That audio courtesy of both SNY and Bally Sports Midwest. Tanner Hendrickson sitting in the big chair today for our guy Alex Ferrario, who was on a much-deserved vacation this week. He's up in Michigan. We've got Grant Francis in studio running the board for us this week as well. Mason Wynn showed you everything you wanted to see, guys. 98 miles per hour on a throw in the infield, had a sprint speed that was considered to be elite on his first hit in Major League Baseball, had another sprint speed on a play that he nearly beat out on first that was right around the same, and he had a multi-hit game yesterday. He showed you everything you wanted to see. The rest of the way, it's about those little moments. It's about, hey, instead of dragging the ball up the line on a throw to home, maybe you take the easy out at third, or you get the ball where it needed to go. It's about, hey, teams are starting to show you a whole heck of a lot of breaking balls down and away, down and away, down and away. Are you able to adjust? Are you able to spit on that a little bit more often the way that eventually in Dylan Carlson's rookie season, we saw him do. Those are the kinds of things that we need to see. But if you're just looking at a first weekend for a guy like Mason Wynn, you want to see the skills. You want to see the talent show itself because it should jump off the page for a player like Wynn. And it certainly did exactly that in weekend number one. Yeah, he looked great in weekend number one. And he showed off all the tools that you were just talking about. You saw the arm, which at times you can tell is probably going to get 
in trouble with accuracy when he really rears up and fires. But that arm's going to be a difference maker. I mean, you saw the play in the hole where he dives to his, I think his right, makes a play and throws a missile to first. That probably should have been an out if Baker's able to pick it. So the defense was as advertised, I think, over the weekend as we kind of assumed. And at the plate, we're going to see how it translates and how he learns to develop as he saw a lot of breaking stuff this weekend. He's got a little bit of Javi Baez, in my opinion, in terms of what he looks like at the plate, kind of free swinging. But we'll see how that translates. But yes, I, I think everything that you saw from Mason Lynn was kind of what you expected. Saw the speed that was elite, saw a great defensive play, saw the cannon of an arm, and then the bat, we'll see how it translates. But three hits, two of those infield singles, everything seemed to be what we hyped up on Friday. Javi Baez, but without the strikeouts. I, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is like, it, it's hard for me to compare any hitter to Javi Baez when you're not striking out 30% of the time. And Mason Wynn doesn't appear to have that kind of swing and miss in his game. He is a free swinger. It's going to get him to, into trouble sometimes. There's going to be some extended slumps because he hits the ground on the ball or he hits the ball on the ground a lot. And he's a guy that is not going to prevent himself from chasing as often as you would like to see. He's got some Jordan Walker to him, honestly. Him and Jordan Walker have a lot of similarities as hitters right now in terms of the profile. Now, Walker hits the ball incredibly hard. Mason Wynn does not, which makes it even more likely that you'll see some prolonged slumps from Wynn. But the truth truth is this. The Cardinals have the lineup to where Mason Wynn, if he's anywhere approaching average as a hitter, that's going to be a guy that you look at two, three, four, five years down the line and say he was everything we needed him to be. And then some because this team needs a gold glove type of defender at shortstop. I don't think Paul DeYoung was that this year. I think you saw moments where Tommy Edmond appeared to be that, but his arm does leave a little something to be desired. Mason Wynn has Tommy Edmond's athleticism with his creativity. And oh, by the way, he's got like you Jordan could, Walker's arm, but better. Yeah. He has the best infield arm. Some have said in all of baseball, not just the major leagues, but in any minor league system as well. So when you combine all of that, I mean, we're talking about a potential potential being the key word here, perennial gold glover at the position who could be a slightly below league average to maybe league average hitter. That is a remarkably talented player, but also a valuable player, especially given what the Cardinals are trying to accomplish next season. Yeah, and to your point about the lineup allowing him to kind of be just an average hitter, I I think you can always have a defensive-minded first player that hits at the bottom of your order if he's an elite defender, and I think Wynn's going to be that. That was always my whole point with Harrison Bader when he was here in St. Louis. You can have a Harrison Bader in your lineup who plays elite-level defense out in center field, one of the primary positions that you need someone to be elite at, as long as you have the lineup to where he's not doing what he's doing with the Yankees earlier this year, hitting cleanup. So I, I think with the lineup that the Cardinals have, it's okay if when it's just a average major league hitter or even a slightly below league average. I, I think you can get away with that because of how good he's going to be defensively. I'm curious to see, and this is the thing that I've always said that why I was high on Nolan Gorman coming into the year, why I'm high on Jordan Walker going into next year. I'm curious to see what adjustments he makes as the season progresses for him because any player that can make adjustments now in his rookie season, even though this won't be technically his rookie season, shows me signs of a bright future to come. Because if he, if you start to see him to adjust to the breaking balls, if you start to see him get the ball off the ground a little bit more, then I'm going to be really encouraged about what he can do moving forward and how he can adjust in an offseason to major league pitching. And that's what I'm excited about the rest of the way. Look, that that's what I expected in his big league debut over the weekend. Now I'm excited to see what steps he's going to take to grow at the plate. Defensively, I think he's going to be this guy all year long. So I'm excited to see what comes from this relationship between the city of St. Louis and Pete Alonso. 
Because there was yet another moment over the weekend when Pete Alonzo, after Mason Wynn's first hit, takes the ball and just chucks it into the stands. Now, he said all the right things after the game. I genuinely believed what he had to say after the game, which was essentially, hey, I had no idea. I did not know that was Mason Wynn's first hit. And because of the way that he said it and the way that he reacted, I think he was being truthful. Here's the problem. There are only two potential answers to the question of what happened there. Either he was just dumb. He was being stupid and didn't realize what was taking place at the time. Or he was being malicious. Those are the only two options with what took place over the weekend with Pete Alonzo. And I think he was just a big old dummy on Friday night. There's no other explanation for it. And I think he realized it after the fact of, oh my God, I can't believe I just did that. And I don't know if you've ever had these moments, Tanner, but there are moments in your life where you do something stupid. People call you out for it. And then you realize it, and then you start to lash out at them, where you're like, no, I I know I was stupid, but let me explain to you why I was stupid. And I think that's what Pete Alonzo was doing on the field as the Cardinals dugout was yelling at him, hey, you idiot, why did you just throw that ball into the stands when there it wasn't the end of the inning, which makes it all the more strange as to why he threw it into the stands. That was one of the more outrageous moments that I've seen on a baseball field against the Cardinals this season. Yeah, and the funny thing is, I don't know if I've ever seen a guy just throw the ball into the stands before the inning's over. Like, it happens all the time when the inning's over. It's ridiculous. I don't, I, I don't think Alonzo did that any other time in the series, throwing a ball into the stands. It, it was one of the most bizarre things that I've seen in a baseball game, especially when it's coming off a guy's first hit. I think you're right. A lot of big, strong guys don't have a lot of big brain plays, you know? So, like, I, I think that was a just dumb moment from Pete Alonso. I think he was, I think he was sincere about it afterwards and said all the right things. But I think you're right. I think it was just one of those stupid moments from someone and just throwing that ball into the stance. It was unbelievable I'm to not, see. I'm not giving him enough credit to say that it was malicious. Like that's what Whoa. I'm doing. I'm not giving him the credit to believe that he did this with like some he was trying to become even more of a sports villain in St. Louis. I don't think he has that in him. I really don't. Somebody on the text slide from the 314 says, guys, they made the announcement on the PA. Go ahead and play it again. You're stupid for believing him. I understand that they said it on the PA and almost everybody. I think the only person in the entire stadium that didn't know it was Mason Wynn's debut was Pete Alonzo. I think he was the only one that seemed to not get the memo. I mean, Buck Showalter was asked after the game about Mason Wynn's debut, and he said, man, how about that arm? Like, he was shocked to see how great he looked in his debut. And that's Buck Showalter. He's seen 50 years of baseball. So, yeah, it was dumb, but I genuinely don't think that Pete Alonzo realized what he was doing. Otherwise, I don't think he would have reacted the way that he did. I mean, he called himself an idiot after the game. So, I... I think he genuinely didn't realize it. And I think the other thing that people got to remember here is these players on the field are able to tune stuff out. They, I would imagine 90% of the guys on the field don't hear the PA announcements because they're so locked in. And I would imagine that Pete Alonso is one of those guys. Now, if you in your mind want to make it up to be something that it's not, by all means, I got no problems with it. You can make Pete Alonzo into the biggest villain in St. Louis sports. I've got no problem That's with that. That's what I'm doing. It's it's a better storyline. I just think he was an idiot. Yeah, I yeah, I kind of agree with you. I, I, even though I would like to have him be the villain, be like the number one villain and have the old classic kind of Cardinals-Mets rivalry, and he got someone to hate in Pete Alonzo, I just 
think it was an idiotic moment just throwing the ball into the stands. I, I don't think he had any true intention of doing it because I think you're right. The way he reacted tells me everything. I, I think had he done it on purpose, he wouldn't even acknowledge the Cardinals uh, dugout and not doing the apology. I don't even think he would have spoke about it after the game had he done it on purpose. So I just think it was one of those idiotic moments. But yeah, I'll be honest, and I just saw this from the 3-1-4. Michaelis should have plunked the polar bear in his next at-bat. I was genuinely stunned Michaelis didn't plunk him and get kicked out in the first inning. I was too. I mean, he did it on a play that was accidental by uh, Ian Happ hitting his catcher in the head with his bat. I'm shocked he didn't plunk him or somebody in that game because that game was a blowout when he threw the ball into the stands. I'm shocked Alonzo did not get hit at any point in this series. So my first reaction was, oh, wow, that's really cool. Pete Alonzo just threw it into the stands to get it to Mason Wynn's parents because I knew they were sitting. We, we had seen them on the screen a million different times. I knew they were sitting kind of in that general area. It's like, oh, Mason Wynn must have told them, like, hey, throw it into the stands. They've got an agreement. My parents are going to get that ball. And then they showed the replay again, and I was like, wait, that's, that's nowhere near where his parents are sitting. What What is Pete Alonso doing there? And so I watched it back again. I was like, did, did Pete Alonso not know? And my initial reaction was what a lot of people on the text line are saying right now, which is he absolutely knew what a jerk. Like That was my first response to it. And then you continue watching the game, and you see how frustrated he is. And I was like, wow, this guy sucks. Like, I really hate Pete Alonso because of the way that he was acting right after he did it. Because I was like, man, this guy, he really just did that and looks like a total ass on the field. And then after the game, when I saw his post game, I was like, oh, no, Pete Alonso is just a dummy. <laughs> He's just not, he, for whatever reason, in the moment, couldn't figure out what was taking place then and so he, he had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad moment. He made it up to Mason Wynn. I don't know that there's any way to really do this because you kind of stole the spotlight in that moment. But he gave him a signed bat, which just, that's rich. <laughs> Giving him a signed bat by you. Oh, that's chef's kiss. And he gave him a bottle of Don Julio 1942. So if, if you're Wynn, who do you want to sign the bat? Or do you even want a bat from a New York Mets player? Like, I would take a Lindor bat, you know? Lindor's I, a nice guy. I think Lindor, because it's your position, yeah. and I would assume he's probably watched a lot of Francisco Lindor and maybe even models his game in a way after Lindor. But, I mean, getting a Pete Alonso signed bat is not a bad consolation prize. No, That's no. definitely second on the pecking order of that I want to know what the bat said. Oh, it's got to say, like, I'm so sorry, or congrats on your first hit, something like that. We need something a little more clever. I did that on purpose, Pete Alonso. Here's a bat. <laughs> Last thing that I wanted to get to here. Could they have paid you to go to that game yesterday? Oh, no shot. No shot. If I told you the requirements are you have to sit in the sun, you can't go into a shade, you're not in a box seat, you're in the sun, lower level, the entire game, just baking in the sun in the 110 degree humidity. Is there a number that I could give you where, I, where you would say, I will sit in the sun for that amount? No. No, I, I'm a huge baseball fan. You know that about me. You couldn't pay me to go to that game yesterday. I walked outside just to get the mail that came on Saturday and walked back into my apartment. So I was outside for a solid two minutes, and I determined I'm not going outside the rest of the day. So you could not have paid me to go sit at that game and watch the Cardinals and the Mets, two very disappointing teams. Maybe if those teams were contending for something, maybe I could put a price tag on it. Yesterday, no chance. You could not pay me to go to that game. Grant? Yeah, no, I feel the same way. I was inconvenienced enough whenever my dog was looking at me, like begging to go outside, and I did not want to get up <laughs> off the couch. So, yeah, going to that game yesterday, no shot. 
I went on a run yesterday, and it was genuinely one of the worst experiences I've ever well, had in my okay. life. By the way, we've got to address what time you went running. One fifteen well, in the I afternoon. Went on my, it was a long run. What I, the I finished around one fifteen. It started around eleven thirty, eleven forty-five. I made my house the midway point of the run to be able to get a little bit of a water break for myself. I was like the twelve-year-olds that are probably having some kind of practice this week. I I needed a little water break. If you gave me like five grand, I would do it. I would need enough to make it really worth my while, but you, the number is large in terms of what I would have to be paid to sit out there in the sun for three and a half hours. I don't know about five grand. I probably would have it for like $500. It's more than that for me. Look, I, I, look, I, I, need, could, I need money, but I, I would do it for $500. Through it. I could suffer through it for $500. No, no. Not yesterday. Wait, wait, would I be getting beverages free? Because if I got free beverages, I, I would I mean, they're included in, if I'm giving you five grand, I would assume you could probably siphon off some of that okay. money oh, to no, get no. your I want beverages. The, I want five grand for being there, and then my beverages are also an additional payment. But if you're talking about alcoholic beverages yesterday, no shot. No, yeah, yeah yesterday, yesterday, it had no. to be water. Yeah. Yesterday's a pure water day. Yeah. yeah. The, the bush light doesn't quite hit the same on a Sunday <laughs> like that. Alongside Alex for, mm, Alex is out. Segment number one, take Where? two, alongside Grant Francis and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll be with you guys until two o'clock. Katie Wu, the great Cardinals insider for The Athletic, will join us coming up at noon, as she does each and every Monday after the Cardinals weekend. But coming up next, there are three pitchers that seem to be auditioning right now for the Cardinals' number five starter spot for next year. Which of them has the lead in that race? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I thought Zach did a nice job, man. He used the fastball extremely well, painted at the bottom of the zone with it, good velo, beat some guys up top when needed, landed his curveball enough, and the, the cutter got some swing and miss. Um, we wanted to keep him right around 80 pitches. He was efficient in that last inning, ended at like 83, I believe. So that was a, a really nice job by him. It allows us to take him up to 95, 100 pitches next time out, which is ideal. That was Ollie Marmel on Bally Sports Midwest over the weekend talking about Zach Thompson, who had another impressive performance. And if you just wanted to go through the three starters that are auditioning for the fifth sp- st- uh, starter spot in the rotation next year, I think you can make a case that Zach Thompson has been the most impressive in the month of August among those three. And we're talking, of course, about Zach Thompson, Matthew Libertor, and Dakota Hudson. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, who's filling in for Alex Rario this week, I'm Brandon Kylie. We've got Grant Francis on the board for us. Uh, T-Bone, I, I was once again incredibly impressed by what we saw out of Zach Thompson. The strikeouts remain up. The walk rate remains down. It looks like a completely different pitcher than who he was when he was down in the minor leagues. He's finally filling up the zone. And when you look at the way that he's pitching for the Cardinals, man, I I pushed back a lot. I'll be totally honest with you. Uh, when Alex suggested last week, hey, Zach Thompson could be one of those guys that ends up in the rotation long term. So that's ridiculous. Look at what he was down in the minor leagues. He cannot be a starter. He is a bullpen arm. And based on what he did in the minors where he had more walks than innings pitched, I think that was a reasonable conclusion to come to. But I might look like a big dummy the way that we saw with Pete Alonso over the weekend. 
where he's just completely proving me wrong every time that he goes out there. Tanner, when you look at what we've seen from Hudson, who's been probably the most consistent of this trio, Matthew Libertor, who had the highest peak of any of these three starters with what he did against the Tampa Bay Rays, and Zach Thompson, who's kind of been the in-between, but maybe the most impressive of the three, who do you think is most likely to earn that number five starter spot going into next year? I, I think it'd be Dakota Hudson because he has shown it a little bit more consistently, I think, than Zach Thompson. And I think when you look at Dakota Hudson, he looks kind of like the guy that you always thought he was going to be, a guy that's not walking guys. He's been able to cut that down since coming back up into the rotation. And he's got some swing and miss stuff to his game. I mean, he had seven strikeouts in his start yesterday against the New York Mets. So I, I think Hudson's the guy for me, though he is a typical five-and-dive starter. I think you know, hey, at least we're going to get five innings around two to three earned runs is what he's going to be. He's a consistent number five. So when I look at Dakota Hudson, he's the guy for me. And I think Zach Thompson is slowly starting to creep up behind him at number two because I have been impressed with Zach Thompson. I, I, I love his stuff when he is right. And I think you saw that on Friday against the Mets, five innings, two run runs, five strikeouts. And, and I, uh, I think Libertor is a guy that is falling back in this competition. I think Libertor is clearly the number three guy among the three that are up here right now in this rotation competing for that spot for next year. But I would say if I had to rank them, I'd go Hudson one, I would go Thompson two. And then I would say that Matthew Libertor is three. And I think he's three by a wide margin. So, I think your ranking is fair. The, the thing about Liberator and where you have him ranked in this spot right now is that I don't think it speaks to his long-term status with the Cardinals. I think Matthew Liberator is third in terms of my ranking of them for a number five starter for next year. I also think he's still the most likely long-term maybe to be in their rotation plans. Does that make sense? Like 2025, if you had to rank these guys in terms of most likely to be in the rotation, he might be number one for me. But he would be as that like fourth or fifth starter. I think he starts the next season in AAA again. And he just he's your number one starter down in AAA. And he just continue developing him. And you hope that over time, the changes that he makes to his body, the changes that he makes to his preparation lead to sustained velocity, the way that we saw against the Rays, and an ability to land that curveball for strikes more often. Because if he can do those two things... We've seen it now. We know he's got the capability of going deep into games with high strikeout numbers and low walk rate. That's the definition of a mid-rotation starter. He's not there yet. With Dakota Hudson, we know what a ceiling is. He's a five-starter. That's it. He's a five-and-dive type of guy, as you described, where you hope that he can get you through five, giving up about two, three, four earned runs, and he keeps you into the game long enough to where you hand things over to your bullpen. You got a chance to win that one. Zach Thompson's the one that I find most interesting, man. Because even with Dakota Hudson, the way that he's performed lately, I want to say this up front. I know I'm going to make people mad because I'm the one that's always lower on, on Hudson than most. It's fair. I am acknowledging that he's been better than I expected. There are also a lot of numbers that suggest this is not sustainable. The same way that he's pitching right now, if he does this over an extended period of time, the results are going to flip on him eventually. Not to where he's unplayable, but to where he looks kind of like he did previously. Guys, he's got a 222 batting average on balls in play, which means when an opponent puts the ball in play about 22% of the time, it becomes a hit against this Cardinals defense. And against that specific pitcher where he is allowing a decent amount of hard contact, even though it's on the ground, that is unsustainable. Eventually that's going to get closer to 300. And when it does, you're going to see the batting average go up and you're going to see the ERA start to bloat a little bit right now his ERA in his last four starts is three, seven, five, his fielding independent pitching, which is more reflective of how he's actually pitching is about five. That's not terrible. That is a playable pitcher from your five starter. 
but it is certainly not as good as what the numbers are indicating right now. The guy who has opened my eyes the most and has made me consider reconsider how I view him long-term is Zach Thompson. If he keeps pitching like this, dude, that guy could be in your five spot next year, and we might say to ourselves, whoa, where did this come from? Like, is he starting to figure it out in a way where maybe he can be a long-term starter for the Cardinals? Guy was a former first-round pick. He had serious pedigree. They gave him that number for a reason. Zach Thompson's the one that I'm most curious to watch the rest of the way. And, and it's that third pitch form. It's that it's considered a cutter on baseball savant. I think it's more of a slider than anything. But it's that third pitch, and that's the pitch that he's brought since he came up here. He had five whiffs on that pitch on his start on Friday against the Mets. That's equal with his fastball. He had no swing and miss on the curveball. So it's that third pitch that he's starting to incorporate. And I said this after that. I don't remember which outing it was. It was the first one where he went kind of long, and you were very negative on him. You were negative yeah. Nancy. Um, you're kind of a Karen, as the kids call it these days. Oh. Um, but... Uh, I said if he if this third pitch is real, this cutter slash slider, he's got a chance to be a starter. And he showed it again on Friday, and, th- and that's the pitch for me. If this cutter slash slider, whatever you want to categorize it as, if that is real, then I think he is the guy that will project as a starter. And I don't know if I would say number five next year, but I think he can leapfrog Libertor as the number one guy you call up next year. Or he be, goes into the bullpen as kind of the long relief man, but I think that's probably going to be Hudson's role going into next season. But I, I think he has a shot to leapfrog Libertor. I'm not as high on Libertor because I've not seen the necessary consistent improvement. It's been kind of once, twice this year, and he just never sustains that. He always reverts back to the guy I've seen previously. At least with Thompson now, I'm starting to see these improvements. Can Drew Rom, the guy that was just called up over the weekend to start tonight's game, jump all of them? Yes? Question mark? I, I think it's possible, but I mean, he's going to have to really showcase himself and look like the guy he was in his last two outings with Memphis, where he only allowed two earned runs, and I can't remember what his strikeout total was, but he struck out. He has swing it's and like miss stuff. over his last two yeah, outings? With like a that. guy that throws like 90, which just seems unfathomable. I don't understand how that equation works, but can he leapfrog them? He can, but I think he's going to have to really showcase himself, and I don't. I think this is just a spot start for him. I don't know if there's going to be much of a role for him after this start today. I hope that they keep giving him opportunities. I don't know how they do. We'll talk about this a little bit more in the 12 o'clock hour. It's going to be difficult to manage in terms of keeping him up here as a starter. But even if you just give him opportunities out of the bullpen, I think it is more meaningful to give Drew Rom opportunities at the big league level right now to find out what he is to find out because we've seen with Zach Thompson. Clearly, there are differences, significant differences between what it's like to pitch down in AAA and what it's like to pitch in the majors. Because for Thompson, it's been a positive difference. For Liberator, for most of the season, it's been a negative difference. Where Liberator is having a ton more success down in AAA than he is in the majors. Thompson, he goes down and it's like becomes this walking machine. And he comes back up to the big leagues and it's one or two walks per outing. So there are key critical differences there, both in terms of the talent that you're going up against and also the strike zone, where I want to see how Drew Rom stuff plays here. I want to get him in this strike zone against these hitters and with this pitching staff and pitching coach specifically to find out where he's at right now. And then next year, you can make your decisions accordingly. So that way you don't go into the offseason without knowing what Drew Rom is. You need to know what you have internally with these guys. And so for me, I, I would have Drew Rom fourth on this list today. Out of the three starters that we've already mentioned, then Drew Rom. Can he work his way up this list, though? Yeah, look at what he's doing down in the minors right now. I don't know how it works. 
He's throwing 90 miles an hour. The velocity doesn't make any sense. You almost never see guys come up at this age with that kind of elo and be significant starters at the major league level. It rarely happens. But he's got the chance to do exactly that because he's got a funky delivery. He's got some deception to him. And he's got real swing and miss stuff. So we'll see what it looks like tonight. I'm super excited to watch him. It's one of the more intriguing starts that we've seen recently just because... Man, you'll see stuff like this. This is like watching Adam Wainwright's stuff now, or last year, really, but in a 23-year-old's body. That has swing and miss. Wainwright didn't have swing and miss last year. It's it's a super weird combination, and I'm fascinated to watch how it works at the major league level. Yeah, I I am too, just real quick, because he's got an interesting delivery, too, because he looks kind of like Jay Happ on the mound, but he also will drop his arm angle, too, to throw sliders, too, to kind of keep hitters off guard, because he comes over the top. But then there are times where he dips the velo almost to like a sidearm action, and I think that's what adds to some of his deceptiveness. Coming up in about 15 minutes, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. But next, man, did Big Sam save City season earlier this year? T-Bone seems to believe that the answer to that question is yes, and he'll explain why coming up next here on 101 ESPN. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. St. Louis now looking for that fourth goal. That insurance goal! And that is game here at City Park. That's what it sounded like on Apple TV yesterday as St. Louis City SC gets back in action against Austin FC. It was an impressive performance by City. A 6-3 winner last night at City Park. By the way, amazing atmosphere given the environment. It was hot as hell out there yesterday. Even last night after the sun went down, it was hot. And you guys were showing out for any of you in the listening audience right now that went to that game. So well done by you. Well done by Sam Adinaran, who has become quite the sensation since his return to City's lineup. Yesterday, he was a sub, came in, ended up scoring a couple of goals. Second time this year that he has come in and ended up scoring multiple goals in a game. T-Bone, we were talking before the show today, and... We're talking about Nico and Jao Klaus and Sam Adinaran and how all of these guys are going to fit into the mix whenever Klaus ends up coming back to the lineup. It's one of those good problems to have, obviously. But when you think about the importance of Big Sam to this lineup, his first big game earlier this season came in a win against San Jose. And you think about where St. Louis City was at that point in time, and they've been struggling in the month of June. Had a tough go of it against Dallas, and then they end up tying against Galaxy, and then they lose against Nashville. They lose against Real Salt Lake, and you go up against San Jose, and you need somebody to step up, and Sam is the guy that did it. He ended up scoring both of the goals in that game that led to a 2-1 to victory for St. Louis City, and you look at what he's done since then, he's become a critical component of this lineup that has 
been one of the best offenses in MLS all season long. If not for him and the depth that this team has on the attack, I don't know where the season would have gone without Zhao Klaus available. Nico's been great, obviously, but they needed a secondary attacker in there, and Sam's become that for them. Yeah, he's been great since coming back from loan when they sent him out, and when they sent him out, it was kind of weird timing because it was like, oh, Klaus is going down with an injury. Oh, by the way, we're sending a Denner in on a loan, which at the, that point, it was kind of like, whoa, they're need, they need more from Sam and Denner to step up, and since coming back, he's been great, as you mentioned. Five goals now ties him with Klaus for uh, second on the team. When you look at their scoring this season, or excuse me, third on their team, and I, I think he's been the biggest difference maker and has helped save the season for St. Louis City, because that stretch that you were talking about, in that time in which they were struggling in June, you're missing Klaus, and it was pretty clear that, though Nico has been a great goal scorer for City, he needed some help up top. He couldn't just be the lone guy there, and at the time, they're also missing uh, Leuven, who, as you saw last night, damn, had a great game. My God, that guy's good. Yeah, um, but at, they were missing those two guys. Their top two players were out due to injury, and it was pretty clear at that point. It was like, okay, I don't know how they're going to survive this because they need some help. They need somebody to step up, and it's it's been three guys since that point that have really done it. Sam Adenarin, one of them, who just had a great goal last night and has played really well since coming back from loan. Jackson in the midfield's been great, and Yarrow has stepped up and been great and on the back line for City. Those three guys, in my opinion, have helped save the season for St. Louis City SC because they're missing their top two players. You've got to go into your depth and see what you have. What Are we going to have anybody step up? Because if not, I think they're a team that's not at the top of the table. They're, probably sit, they're still a playoff team, but they're probably sitting more in the middle. And now they're still at the top. Why? Because of these three guys stepping up. And now when you get everybody back and healthy, you're going to see where Adenarin is going to be a guy that's probably coming off the bench that can help get Klaus back out of the game in probably the 70th minute, and then you get a fresh leg that can score in a dinner end, which is great. You've got Nielsen coming back to help out the back line, and you've seen what Leuven can do now that he's back and healthy. Credit to Lutz, by the way, because we all wondered, what what is this team going to be? Like You look at year one, the history of these teams. T-Bone, I remember you and I were doing some of the research prior to the season. It's like, man, it, basically, there's two teams that have been good in their inaugural season in MLS, and otherwise everybody kind of stinks. And then we looked at the FanDuel odds on where City was expected to finish, right? And if you looked at the odds to win MLS this year, they were like last. And it was like 30 to 1 or something ridiculous, like well beyond every other team in MLS. And so it kind of set the expectations accordingly. It's like, all right, we we know Roman Berkey's going to be pretty good. They've got a good goalie. That's a great starting point. But what else do they have? Do they have the depth to be able to go through this? I remember listening to to Tam earlier this season, and he was talking about it, and they they mentioned how, you know, the depth's going to be tested as we get further into the season. And last night was the perfect example of that. It's like 170 degrees here in St. Louis. These guys are dog-tired by the end of that game. You could see it. Like, that's why there was such a goal-scoring um, production at the end of that one. Everybody was exhausted. And... Because City had the necessary depth on their roster, because they continue to add even in season, they've been able to withstand some of those tests of injuries, some of the tests of guys just being exhausted at the end of games. So credit to what they've been able to do in terms of the roster, uh, but also just a credit to these players, man. They, they've been great. They coalesced in a way that I didn't think they were going to be able to, and now you're looking at it. I think they've got a chance to capture the minds and hearts of this St. Louis sports fans. Because you look down the stretch, man, it ain't a whole lot going on with the St. Louis Cardinals right now. 
You're not excited to watch them play Pittsburgh tonight? I am. I'm excited because of Drew Rom. I'm excited because Mason wins here. But the outcomes of the games no longer matter, at least not to me. They do to the players. They do to Ollie. I get all of that. I'm not suggesting that the players are, like, throwing the games. They're not. They're trying to win because they've got jobs for many of them on the line for next year. But St. Louis City is playing for something meaningful. The Blues don't begin for another month. Mizzou doesn't really begin in terms of, like, its actual season for, like, three weeks. We're watching right now a team in City that is playing for something meaningful, and they're really the only show in town that can say that right now. So over the next month, if they continue playing like this, I do think they have a real chance to be able to capture a bigger portion of the St. Louis audience than what I would have expected, and honestly, than what I think they expected because of the opening that is there right now with the Cardinals struggling and with City being better than anybody could have reasonably expected in year one. Yeah, and I, I think you're right on because, I mean, you're talking about a team that it's not like they're like just in the middle of the table where it's like, okay, they're probably a playoff team. It's just now they more about seeding. They could be number one in the West. They're, they're competing for home field advantage through the Western Conference. And honestly, they're not that far out. I mean, Cincinnati lost yesterday to being uh, near the top of the Supporters' Shield, being the best record in MLS. They've got the second most points after last night. And they're only seven back of FC Cincinnati. So, like, it, it's possible that not only are you watching a team that's competing to try and earn that top spot in the Western Conference to force the playoff field through St. Louis in the West, but also trying to compete and get that supporter shield, which in year one is just unbelievable and tough to fathom at the start of the season. I just looked this up because you mentioned their odds. I remember going to Illinois, and I don't remember when this was placed on March 27th when I put this bet down. They were at plus 2,000 to win the U.S. Uh, the MLS championship. Plus 2,000 is what I've got them at on March 27th. And now they're going to be one of the favorites because they're atop the Western Conference still. I was about to say, do you know what it's at now? Have you have you looked it up? I, I can check it out real quick. See, but... I have not. Let me look here real quick. But I, I would imagine they're probably top four would be my guess in terms of what they're going to be in terms they of the favorites. They are now at 10 to 1. To win the West, to win uh, to win MLS this year, surprisingly Cup. behind Miami. Huh? Wonder why. <laughs> Can we talk about that real quick? That guy's unbelievable. I said he's old out. and washed up. No, he's not. Yeah, remember when you said, "Oh, this is ridiculous. He's old. He's washed up. This isn't even going to be, buddy." I still think it speaks about the MLS talent. It probably does. You mentioned over the weekend how you watched some Premier League, you watched some Bundesliga, and then you watched City last night, and it looked like a different sport to you. All fair. I watched college football in the NFL. College football, not the same quality as the NFL. Guess what? It's still a hell of a lot of fun to watch. I really enjoy watching football on Saturdays. This weekend, week zero in the college football season, USC is playing San Jose State, and that's like one of the marquee matchups. It's Notre Dame versus Navy. You know where my butt's going to be over the weekend? Watching those games because football is back on TV, and I feel the same way about watching City and watching Inter-Miami every weekend now. Those are two, like, can't-miss appointment-viewing television uh, moments for the weekend every single weekend now. Uh, it's a hell of a lot of fun. It's great to have City as part of our weekend schedules now. And with the way that the Cardinals have been playing, I, I really think there's an opportunity for them to catch, capture an even bigger market share here in St. Louis than what any of us could have expected in year one. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll talk to Katie Wu. She's the Cardinals insider for The Athletic. But next, we'll get to questions and answers. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 
You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line for questions and answers. We'll get to Katie Wu on the other side here in just a little bit. Talk to her about the Cardinals' young pitchers that are coming through, what she expects to see tonight out of Drew Rom and big opening weekend out of Mason Wynn as well. All right, let's start with this from the 314. Guys, have you come up with a date for the highly anticipated debut dating show called For the Love of T-Bone? We have not, and we won't be. So end of end of conversation. I feel like uh, January is a great time oh, for a dating game like that. Why January? No Cardinals offseason news really to speak of. That's typically kind of after the heart so of it. They're going to be so active this offseason? Ta- they will be active in November this year because they're going to get the, the front end guys, <laughs> <Okay>. the <laughs> top sure. of the market, and those guys go off the board very early, just as they did last year with Wilson Contreras. So November is going to be a little busy for us. We've got uh, some football stuff going on down the stretch in December, and a lot of us, let's be honest, are taking off in December. That's a prime vacation spot. January feels about right. Referring to yourself? Yep. Of course. Shocker. I've got a lot of vacation days to take between now and then, buddy. You ready for it? You excited? No, we're not doing it. New year started off right, man. No, no. New year, new T Bone dating game. Yeah, without BK and Ferrario's help. No. You're you're not helping yourself, so we have to help you. No, no. I don't want your guys' help. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. From the 636, guys, do you think that both Krug and Perunovic could play in the same lineup for the Blues this year? I want to say no, because I, I I don't think both can be in the lineup at the same time. There's two very small defensemen that are really just power play specialists. And that leaves you just four defensemen out there that are to play defense. Your top pairing, Preko, Letty, Falk kind of out there, but he's more an offensive defenseman too. And then I think that third pairing is probably going to be some sort of combination of like Tucker, Scandella, Bortuzzo, guys that can help on the penalty kill. So I, I can't see a scenario in which Perunovic and Krug are both playing in the lineup. I, I think the only way you see Perunovic in the lineup is if Krug gets hurt. And I think that's the only time that you'll see Perunovic up with the NHL club this year. Plus, you also got a left a lot of left-handed shots on, on your defensive side of things. Like you've got Tyler Tucker, Marco Scandella, Callie Rosen, uh, along with Perunovic and Krug, and then Nick Letty. So like you got a lot of players there on the left side to have basically two of the same player in your lineup. So no, I, I don't really see that happening unless there are a ton of injuries at one point and then you're kind of forced to play them both at the same time. But in an ideal situation for the Blues, no, I don't think they would want to do that. I think they will do it a decent amount after the deadline-ish. Like I, I think there will come a point in time where it's just let's find out what we've got internally type of a situation and if that happens, I think you're going to see a lot of both of them in the lineup. Who says they're going to want to showcase what they have in Tori Krug, and they're going to want to find out at some point this year what Perunovic is. They they have to. They have to. This is a year where it's kind of put up or shut up time, right? Every prospect gets to that place at some point in their respective careers. I think this is that year for Perunovic. You've, you've got to know what you have in him, and you, if you can't do it now, then then win. You said they. You think they're going to do that a lot post trade deadline. Would you say that that's basically them giving up on playoff hopes for the season at that point? Not necessarily. So I, I say that because I 
kind of look at the writing on the wall. I'm not sure this is going to be like a legit contender in 2023. Right. That's not to suggest they're going to be as bad as they were last year, but I think they're going to be at some point. I, I believe my expectations are for the season. There'll be a fine, solid team that is not competing for a cup and when and if they come to that conclusion, that's when I think they make that determination. So are they giving up on the season? I mean, you could call it that. I think it's more of we got to find out what we've got here. And I don't think you're throwing him out there saying he's uh, this total liability. I think you're saying, hey, this guy's a solid, capable defenseman. We got to we got to find out what we have in him. Well, and I think, too, this is a problem that will probably work itself out again through sure. the injuries. Like that's what happens during a hockey season. Like everybody usually gets their opportunity. So that's where I see you know, you being able to look at Perunovic and seeing what you got in him. Uh, T-Bone, this one's for you from the 314. I saw that Illinois officially named their starting quarterback today. It's going to be Luke Altmeyer, the transfer from Ole Miss. How do you feel about that, T-Bone? I'm excited about it because they have kind of high hopes for him. They they think he can be kind of the answer at quarterback for potentially. I think he's got three more years of eligibility. I think their hope is that he can be that for three years at Illinois and be really the first legitimate starting quarterback they've had since, what, Juice Williams back in like mid 2000s. I think that's probably the closest to when they've had a guy that's been a legitimate starting quarterback for them. And that's not to take anything from Tommy DeVito, but he was only there for last year. Um, And the hope would be, and we had Jeremy Werner on, I think it was last week. And he said, you know, hopefully they can open up the big passing game uh, a little bit more this year because that was their limit last year. It was just basically DeVito was going to get the ball out of the sands as quick as possible and didn't have a deep arm. We'll see if Altmaier's got that. But I'm excited because he was one of the top recruits coming out of high school. I think he's a four-star quarterback when he got recruited. Uh, So I'm excited to see what he has, and we'll see if he can open up the passing game a little bit more. He's Tanner Hendrickson. That's Grant Francis, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so. There are very few pitchers that succeed in Major League Baseball the way that Drew Rahm is hoping to succeed. So what does that mean for his outlook? We'll talk about that in about 15 minutes, but Katie Wu will discuss his debut next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. Alex Ferrario out this week. He's up in Michigan with the family taking some well-deserved vacation. But right now we are happy to be joined by who is basically our fourth member of the show. She's Katie Wu, Cardinals insider for The Athletic. That is where you can go to find her work. You can also find it on Twitter at Katie J. Wu. Katie, we appreciate the time as always. How was your uh, beautiful, balmy, sunny weekend out at Bush Stadium? Yeah, it was balmy, that's for sure. And and the baseball, I wouldn't qualify that as beautiful, maybe up until the very end. But it was a weekend, guys. How are you doing today? Uh, we're doing fantastic. So let's start with the obvious, and that is Mason Wynn's debut for the Cardinals. Let's start with his performance on the field, and then we can get to, of course, the moment off of it. <laughs> what did you think of Mason Wynn this weekend in our first experience seeing him in the big leagues? He's as good as advertised. I mean, it's it's a really daunting task to make your big league debut, and I think he's handled all of it in the last three days really, really well. That poise, that composure. Sometimes I just forget that I'm watching a guy that has three days of service time take the shortstop for the Cardinals each day. Um, but, look, the speed is there. The arm strength is there. The nerves were there. That will calm down as he gets acclimated to the big leagues. Uh, that first road trip is super pivotal because it allows you to stay at, like with your team but away from the home crowd and can allow you to just kind of find your footing again. But 
No, super exciting for Mason Wynn and for Cardinals fans. I mean, let's be honest, there really has not been much to be excited about since the trade deadline came to a close. But having fans in the stands and having them cheer for Mason and before he even can take his first big league at bat, I feel like that's the kind of Cardinals camaraderie from the fan base that we're all used to. So I really liked it in that regard to see Mason come up and debut. Um, and I think he's going to be a really, really strong addition for this club. All right. Now let's get to the other moment from him. What happened with Pete Alonso? What did you make of it? Where do you land now on whether or not he knew what he was doing in that moment? I don't think he knew. Um, and I think it's just, look, let's, let's take it into consideration where the Cardinals and Mets are this year. Two teams that were supposed to be really good. This was supposed to be an actually like huge showdown this last weekend when the schedule makers put this all together. It was not. Um, look, I hear the arguments. How can he not know about the debut? You know, it's been announced on the PA system. There were like three ovations, and debuts are exciting. Usually, teams on or people on both teams know what's happening. Um, I think Pete just had like a major, just like a brain fart, like what he said, uh, just like totally, totally forgot. And that happens. I know that there's been some animosity from Alonzo and Cardinals fans in years past. We certainly remember the benches clearing incident in 2022. But I just want to break down a couple things that I saw from fans, and they're fair questions. You can see at the end of the play, Alonzo has the ball and he's shaking it, motioning it towards the umpire. He's doing that scene if they want the ball. If the ball boys or the bat boys want the ball back, because usually when the play is over, they'll get a new baseball to the pitcher. Joey Lucchese already had a pitcher. I couldn't see what the home plate umpire was saying, but it was clear they didn't need the ball. So Pete Alonzo just chucked it into the stands. Total lapse in judgment. Uh, but this happens a lot. In fact, uh, the Cardinals' own third baseman does this. So... I think he just totally slipped up in the moment and immediately Cardinals fans, Cardinals players were letting him hear it. I mean, Miles Michaelis game has to be stopped. Uh, Stubby Claps said, did you just throw that into the stands? Um, and also that ends well is right because Mason did get the ball back. And I think Pete was very apologetic, handled it very nicely, getting him that bottle of 1942 Don Julio assigned bat. If anything, Mason handled it incredibly well, saying that it was super funny, um, that you know he thought it was even more funny when he got the ball back. But no, I don't think he did it on purpose. I just think he wasn't thinking. Katie, with the Cardinals pitchers this week in Dakota Hudson, had a great outing yesterday. Zach Thompson on Friday was good. What, what's what been the difference with those two guys since coming up from AAA? Because Thompson had more walks than innings pitch in Memphis, and Dakota Hudson had a 6 ERA when he came up to the Major League staff. This is a good question because for both of these pitchers, Thompson and Hudson, filling up the zone is pivotal in their success. In the ABS, the automatic ball strike system in AAA, you can't access the top of the zone on a lot of guys because that pitch is not going to be called a strike. Now, there's also some performance-based metrics that, the card, or that Hudson and Thompson need to do, correct, And they've gotten a lot better. I mean, Hudson's slider looks like it did in 2019. Thompson's curveball looks really good. But for those guys to have their stuff and get results using the bottom of the zone, that's where they're most successful, they have to access the top of the zone to keep big league hitters guessing, or in their case, triple-A hitters guessing. They couldn't do that all the way with the ABS because those balls were being counted as balls, not strikes. And any hitter is going to take that as a free pass. So I think it's a combination of fine-tuning their pitches and fine-tuning their command and also being able to use the whole zone in the majors. That's why when we hear Ollie Marmol say that there's some guys whose AAA numbers just don't match what they're going to do in the big leagues, 
I think that is somewhat an unintended consequence of the ABS and the system they're using in AAA to call balls and strikes. How do you then evaluate if you're, I guess, somebody on the outside looking in, right? I'm sure the team has better numbers than we do in terms of what their evaluation is. But for us, how do we evaluate some of these guys that are down in the minor leagues when we're looking at what they are accomplishing down there, especially the guys that are struggling? Yeah, that's super tough because, I mean, and I'm guilty of this as well. You look at box scores down in AAA and you see numbers and you're like, well, that's not going well. So for me, I've had to really watch the games um, and I've had to talk to these guys, um, which, of course, is not a luxury that most people can do. But it reinforces to me that there's always something going on beyond the box score. And I think MLB is doing a really good job of making more minor league games available. So being able to watch these games and be able to see these metrics has been really helpful. Um, but also, if you're just trying to evaluate guys, I take the, I take ERAs and I take walk rates with a grain of salt, which is difficult because those are the two most telling basic stats of a pitcher is having right. a good year or not, the walk rate and the ERA. Um, but I also look at pitch profile. And Hudson's a sinkerball guy, so you know that he needs to fill the zone up. Thompson, we're still figuring out what exactly his arsenal can be because it can kind of change between a reliever and a starting pitcher. But I think it's just a case-by-case basis, and I'm sure the, that minor league baseball, major league baseball will figure out the ABS system and continue to, to modernize it and perfect it. Um, but for Hudson specifically, it was really important to make sure that he could access the top of the zone, and that's why I think you're seeing much more consistent results from him in the second half. As a follow-up on that, Katie, I know both of us were very excited in the World Baseball Classic about what we had seen from Guillermo Zuniga. He has now been called up. When you look, again, at his minor league numbers, it's not exciting. I mean, he had walked 20 batters in 28 innings and had an ERA approaching eight. But what we saw from him this weekend is more of what we saw from him over in the World Baseball Classic, where it wasn't perfect, but he struck out a few batters. Is that something that you're excited to see the rest of the way with Guillermo Zuniga? What kind of runway do you think we'll get of him here? Um, well, the Cardinals do have to make a roster move today oh, to activate on. Drew Rom. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to seeing Zuniga maybe in the next couple of weeks. Oh, um, no. <laughs> but, but um, look, he's a high-leverage guy. The Cardinals have basically at least half of their bullpen spots open next year. I'm sure he'll get a fair share to compete. I'm, in, I'm fully on board of the let-the-kids-play era. If you have guys that you're counting on, as question marks for 2024, let them go now. Let's see what they have at the major league level now. I thought, uh, talking to John Mazalak early over the weekend, he essentially said the same thing. Jordan Walker was the, the exception in this case, but he really likes prospects to be able to perform a little bit ahead of when they're fully expected to, quote, compete with the club. That's why I'm com- calling Mason up this weekend. Made a lot of sense. I, if you are not sure what you have with Zuniga, Throw him in the big leagues this year. I mean, the Cardinals don't really have much more to lose at this point. Um, and it would be much easier to have a, a baseline of what can, you can expect from some of these guys. Like Jojo Romero, for example, is running away with this opportunity. So hopefully when rosters expand in September, Zaniga can get that extra, um, that extra time and maybe do what he can to put himself up on the, the status board in terms of what he could do next year in the uh, bullpen for 2024. Well, Katie, you mentioned Drew Rom, so I want to ask you about him. He's going to get his Major League debut tonight with the St. Louis Cardinals. In his two outings in Memphis, he struck out 18. Is this just a spot start for Drew Rom because they had to push back Matthew Libertor? Or is there a chance that if he pitches well tonight, they could potentially look at like a six-man rotation and see more of Drew Rom? 
It's a good question. Um, I don't think the organization was going to go out and just say it was a spot start if it was. Um, I mean, we know there are pitchers that are going to continue being in the rotation. That's Hudson, Libertor, and Thompson. They're going to see extended looks throughout the year. Obviously, Miles Michaels is not going anywhere, and Adam Wainwright can control his own destiny here with another uh, good start, which I believe is Tuesday, but don't quote me on that. The Cardinals are restructuring their rotation a little bit. I think the Cardinals really just needed a spot starter for today. Uh, They could have pushed Libby and had him start today without throwing a bullpen, but they didn't think that was in the best interest for anybody. So they just moved him back a couple of days. But if Drew Rom shows some potential, shows some flashes, or just has a really good start, you can make the argument for a six-man rotation. But I think it really just kind of depends on how it goes. Obviously, though, it's exciting. When John Lozalock made all those trades at the deadline, you know, there wasn't a a high expectation that any of these prospects were going to be major league ready uh, by the end of the season. But Drew Rom looks really, really strong in Memphis. That swing and miss trait was there, which is even more exciting because he's not a guy that's going to overpower you on the radar gun. His fastball really only sits low 90s, but he's had such exceptional command and can make the speed so effectively in AAA. Makes sense. Just why not give him a shot tonight? Katie Wu is our guest here on 101 ESPN. Final question that I've got for you, Katie. You can find her work, by the way, over at The Athletic. I, I was looking earlier today, and I saw the quotes from Dylan Carlson about his injury that he's dealing with with his ankle. I, I know they put him on the IL for that oblique, but now it sounds like the ankle is a big concern again. What's going on with him? How hurt was he this year? What was he playing through? Yeah, when we talked to Dylan in Kansas City, he didn't even mention the ankle. It was just the oblique strain. And then coming back for this homestand, it it became pretty clear that the oblique strain was secondary to the ankle. And this has been a reoccurring, lingering pain throughout the year. And I think that would explain some of his numbers. And, you know, you... When you have someone that wants to play as much as possible, like Dylan, and definitely feels the pressure this year of trying to perform, it makes sense. But... If this, this ankle injury was sustained on Mother's Day, it's almost September. So clearly he has not been healthy for quite some time. Contemplating surgery or contemplating another injection, we will see. Um, but it, it's, I feel like Dylan did this last year as well in terms of just trying to play through an injury and it hurt him in the long run. He's so young. I mean, we saw in 2021 what he could do when he's fully healthy. And I think it makes a lot more sense to why those numbers weren't all the way there. Uh, But yeah, certainly a perplexing season, a frustrating season for Carlson and the Cardinals and a season that could unfortunately be coming to an end if Dylan does elect to do surgery. Katie, we appreciate the time as always. We'll be reading you over at The Athletic. Enjoy the series this week in Pittsburgh. We'll talk with you again next week, my friend. You got it, guys. See you soon. You got it. That's Katie Wu joining us here as she does each and every Monday on BK and Ferrario alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis. I am Brandon Kylie. Dylan Carlson's injury is something that I think we're going to look back on and say to ourselves, like it, it was just a year from hell for him. It, it didn't work out in any way possible. He showed real flashes in spring training of like, oh, OK, maybe he's going to be able to hit right handed pitching this year. And then you have the crowded outfields early in the season where they're trying to figure out, okay, what do we have in Jordan Walker? What is the role moving forward for Tyler O'Neill? How do we get all of these guys playing time? And he, Dylan Carlson, did at times get lost in the shuffle in that. Now, I think it's also fair to acknowledge in the month of April, he got a pretty good amount of playing time because of injuries that took place. He started 13 games, played in 20 in the month of April. So it's not as if he was just a pure bench player that month, but whatever. I almost think you can kind of write the season off again. The problem for Dylan Carlson is he's now going to be going into year five of his major league career. 
And we can say in back-to-back seasons in year three and four, he had injuries that you could basically write those seasons off because of. That is not the place that you want to be in if you're Dylan Carlson. And going into the offseason, if this thing is real with his ankle and we have no reason to believe that it's not, and if he decides to get surgery, I don't know that the Cardinals are going to be able to or should trade him in that situation because then you will genuinely be trading him at his absolute lowest point in terms of his value. There will be a case to be made going into the offseason that the best thing for them to do is to do what they did with Paul DeYoung. And I know it's not exciting, but wait for it. See what it looks like going into next year. Maybe he starts the year as your starting center fielder. Maybe he starts the year as your fourth outfielder. But either way, he probably has more value in either of those two roles to you than he would by going out and hitting the open market via trade. Yeah, I, I think this injury is going to just take him off the trade block. I, you, you're not going to sell low on him because of his prospect status. You're going to hope that he does have a rebound. But the one thing I will push back on is I'm not writing this year off because of injuries. Yes, he's been hurt since Mother's Day. He was not hitting prior to this ankle injury that has been lingering. I just looked up his numbers from that game before he got hurt uh, against Boston on May 13th. So from the start of the year to May 13th, 31 games, 24 starts, and he was hitting 222 with a 614 OPS. He he just wasn't hitting. So I'm not going to write this year off because he was he's the same guy that I thought he was going into the year. So I'm not writing it off of, oh, his struggles this year because of injury. Yeah, I'm sure they played a part of it, but that doesn't explain the issues prior to the injury. So what you saw early on, that's what Dylan Carlson is, and that's how you should kind of project him moving forward. I don't think you're going to be able to trade him because of the injury, but plan on him being your fourth outfielder next year and hope for a bounce back. If you missed anything from uh, that conversation with Katie Wu, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, or the free 101 ESPN app is where you can go to find it. One of the things that she said was about Drew Rom, who throws in the low 90s. He topped out in his most recent performance down at AAA. At 93 miles per hour, his average fastball velo, around 89. Who does he compare to in the big leagues that has had success at that low of a velo? We'll tell you next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. The Cardinals have particularly, in, in a couple of spots in recent years, gone after some of these guys with unusual deliveries, particularly what they call the low approach angle or low attack angle. I also think the hitters tend to tell you how effective that is. And in Rom's case, yeah, he gets strikeouts. He also gives up a lot of hard contact. And the lack of a breaking ball is going to be a serious, serious problem for him being anything more than a one-inning reliever. All right, so that was Keith Law, who was very pessimistic Man. about Drew Rom, the Cardinals' young lefty starting pitcher that's making his Major League debut today. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kiley. I'm not quite as pessimistic as Keith Law. Keith Law is a tool. Thank Thanks, you, Janet. Janet. Appreciate it. I, I'm actually fascinated by Drew Rom. Because I love it when you see somebody that just is completely out of the norm, whether that's in a good way, a bad way, somewhere in between, just completely different than anything we're used to seeing. And T-Bone, that's the case for Drew Rom, the starting pitcher tonight for the Cardinals. My dude tops out at 93 on his fastball. Tops out at 93. His average fastball velo in his most recent outing was 89 miles per hour. You know what he did in that game against the Norfolk Tides? He went six innings, 
one hit allowed, eight strikeouts, two walks. And that was actually the lesser of the two starts that he's made so far in a Cardinals uniform. In total so far, with the Memphis Redbirds, opposing hitters are batting 056 against him. He has a .82 ERA because he's allowed one earned run in 11 innings. And oh, by the way, he has 18 strikeouts in those 11 runs. So let me restate this. 18 strikeouts in 11 innings, despite the fact that he tops out at 93 and mostly throws in the low, low, low 90s. His average velo is about 89 miles per hour. So he's got way no velo and he's striking out the world down at AAA. Some of that, not all of it, some of that can be explained by AAA hitters. Like you're just going up against lesser competition and therefore you're going to get more swing and miss. Not all of it, though. Some of it is just there's something about this dude that makes him different. And so, T-Bone, yesterday I looked up who are the capable starting pitchers, not even great, capable starters that are throwing this kind of velocity over the last five years. There's a few of them, but a lot of them are old guys. They're the Adam Wainwrights, the Rich Hills, uh, Jason Vargas at the end of his career. So I'm going to throw those guys to the side because Drew Rump's 23. This isn't a lack of velo because he's 40. This is a lack of velo because he's never had velo. So some of the other guys that fit into this criteria, who are the comparisons for if this works, Drew Rom Drew, Drew looks like blank. Dane Dunning is one All right. starting pitcher for the Texas Rangers. I saw him shove against the Cardinals. He's had some decent outings. He's been pretty good this year, honestly. Kyle Hendricks is another. We've seen him shut yeah, down the Cardinals really for years. Against the Cardinals. Suddenly, I'm understanding why the Cardinals are interested in a guy like Drew Rom. The third, and I think this is maybe the the best comparison for what you could see out of Drew Rom, is a former Cardinal farmhand, Marco Gonzalez. Marco Gonzalez does not have a whole lot of velo. In fact, some of the worst velo in all of Major League Baseball, if you look at it relative to the league average. But he doesn't walk anybody. In 2018, when he broke into the big leagues, he was 7th percentile in velo, so 95% of the league was throwing harder, and top 10 percentile in chase rate. So when he threw it out of the zone, despite the low batting or the low velo, people were chasing left and right. So I think that's what it looks like. Your hope is Drew Rom can become for you what Marco Gonzalez ultimately became for the Seattle Mariners. T-Bone, what's your level of confidence, though, that he can become that? I don't know if it's very high just because I haven't seen it here at the major league level. And I I think when you're a guy that doesn't have velo, it is really hard to have success at this level. So my confidence would be like a five if you're asking me. But I am fascinated to see what he looks like because I think you're right on with Marco Gonzalez. And I would sign up to have him in this rotation oh, yeah. because he's been great. This is the first year he's really dealt with injury since being in Seattle. And I just looked up from 2018 to 2022, the years he's been healthy. He's been 4% above league average and covered 765 and two-thirds innings pitch. So like, if he can be somewhat of a guy that is kind of pitching to contact, has a little bit of swing and miss... I would sign up for that in this rotation. I, I think that that's got the ceiling as a like number five starter for you potentially, but I, I can't see him like that cut we played a Keith Law coming back from break. I can't see him having success out of the bullpen because he doesn't throw hard. Like name a reliever that doesn't throw hard that's going to have success. It took me about an hour last night to find the starters. Yeah, I'm definitely not going in and finding relievers because I think the answer is they don't exist. Exactly. Like I, I genuinely and text us three one four three nine 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 six four six is the Air Comfort Service text line. Text us if you've got a name. That makes sense as a comparison for Drew Rom coming out of the bullpen. I think what he would have to have is like 
just a wipeout slider yeah. if he was going to be that guy because you would have to go secondary pitches as your primary pitch, and then your fastball would just like barely play at all. It'd just be like, hey, I'm going to throw this in there to kind of get you off of the speed of my off of the look of my slider or whatever it ended up being as the the secondary pitch for Drew Rom. And it doesn't sound like he has that really. Yeah. So I I don't I don't know that he's going to be anything for you at the big league level if he can't be a starter other than maybe a long reliever like maybe yeah. he plays the casey lawrence role that they have right now Are you trying to get rid of casey lawrence yes i've been trying for weeks oh come um, on maybe that's the route that it could go but i i don't see any other direction i did want to speaking of casey lawrence listen to a quick thing that i heard over the weekend from the best podcast in baseball t-bone Derek Gould and Ben Fredrickson were on yesterday and if you want to check this out you can go to the st louis post dispatch website to find their full podcast but they were taking they were talking about the Cardinals and how they struggle to take advantage of the opportunity that's been given to them right now. Names like Casey Lawrence immediately came to mind for me <laughs> as I was listening to this thinking about what the Cardinals have failed to accomplish. They don't just want to completely bail on the season and chase the highest draft pick. Meanwhile, they want to get these young guys playing a lot. Are they are they prepared to stomach the losing that could come with that? I, I just don't I don't know. It's weird. They built a team that is a losing team, but they are not built for to benefit from it either. <laughs> They're not coping with it. They don't it's, even it's, seem to be galvanized by the frustration of losing. Like that's one thing. Right. Like they can't get on the same page about about how to react. T Bone, you look at what they did over the weekend. And this is just as an example of what we're watching right now in terms of what the Cardinals are trying to accomplish while struggling. So against the A's in the final game of that series, the Cardinals lost eight to nothing. The final half of that game did not matter. You know who finished it for them? Casey Lawrence threw four and two thirds, gave up two earned runs. He was totally fine. And you know what we got out of that? Nothing. Nothing. You learned nothing about anything on your roster by Casey Lawrence throwing four and two thirds innings. That's what he was here for, is to eat innings and to finish that game for the Cardinals. There has to be a better way to use that roster spot. Then you look into this weekend, because that wasn't the only time that we saw something like this. You go back to what the Cardinals did in that 7-1 to loss against the Mets. You know what they did? Suarez goes out there, gives you an inning. You know what his future is here in St. Louis? It doesn't exist. James Nail goes out there, gives you three innings. You know what his future is here in St. Louis? They told you yesterday when they decided to send him back down to Memphis. The Cardinals right now have real opportunities that exist coming out of this bullpen. You saw another three and a third innings out of Suarez also this weekend. There are real opportunities that exist. And whether that is for a guy like Drew Rahm or Connor Thomas or some of these guys that have been in the system that are currently on the 40-man roster. And we just talked earlier today about how AAA is different this year than it is at the major league level because of the ABS system that they're utilizing. If Zach Thompson can go down there and struggle and Dakota Hudson can go down there and struggle and then both of them come up and have the success that we've seen, maybe Guillermo Zuniga deserves an opportunity to find out what he looks like when he's not using the automatic ball strike system because balls were a huge issue for him down in the minor leagues. I don't know if that's going to sustain up in the big league level. I thought he looked pretty good over the weekend for the most part, had some clear velocity and he might be in your plans next year. Shouldn't we find out? If he can do it, shouldn't we find out if Connor Thomas deserves an opportunity to be on the 40-man roster again next year? Shouldn't we find out if Drew Rump, let's say things go okay but not great tonight as a starter for him, and they don't want to go to a six-man rotation? That's fine. 
maybe you keep him on this roster and utilize him in that Casey Lawrence role. Yes, that means it's low leverage opportunities. So be it. Find out what he can do. Find out what he looks like against big league hitters as opposed to throwing him down there again in AAA where we've seen he can dominate hitters. Let's find out something about these guys while you have this opportunity that's been given. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I, I would like to see some more young arm, like Zuniga, for example. I do think he's probably being optioned down for Rom today. And I think that's the wrong call. I want to see more of Zuniga. I thought he looked good in his outing against the Mets over the weekend. I And like that long relief role for what you're talking about, Suarez, uh, Lawrence, who we're talking about here, like... Why can't we see a McGreevy? Why can't we see a Graceffo come out of the bullpen? Now, I think what the Cardinals would tell you, and this is my guess, is they can't plan out that. They can't plan for them. Like Suarez, for example, he pitched on August 18th and covered an inning. That was his, his outing previous before that was August 4th. And I think that's what the Cardinals would tell you is we can't plan out their outings. We want McGreevy and Graceffo to know, hey, every, whatever it is, sixth day, you're going to be starting down in AAA. So that's my assumption for the starters. But I still want to see the bullpen Well, look arms. at all your starters right now. All of them are going five innings. Yeah. All of them. So guess what? There's going to be work to be had. I promise you. If you're able to go out there, and Ollie's good at his job, especially when it comes to what, like, I'm going to give Ollie a little bit of credit here. I know our texters hate him, and that's fine. Whatever. Not having that conversation right now. But Ollie knows how to manage a bullpen, man. We've seen this in the past where he'll go multiple innings with his relievers. Remember last year in Chicago, what he was able to do? He could do that with some of these guys where he's mixing and matching, and maybe they go three innings apiece over the course of the final month of the season or so. And then you get to the back end guys, too. So you go three innings of bridge relief from a former starter, and then you get the one inning for a Geo or for a JoJo, or maybe you want to get Drew Verhagen. I wouldn't really even worry about that at this point. He's not a guy that's fitting into your long-term plans either. Just get the young guys those opportunities. I I think they're missing out on it. On the Specifically with Graceffo and McGreevy, the reason why I don't think they're going to call them up is because there's no Rule 5 decision this offseason with them. They might just not even call them up at the end of this year. And then I give them a lot of grief for the 40-man. I think a lot of it is fair. What they could do is use those spots on the 40-man roster to just accumulate talent this offseason and then figure it out during spring training. And even if those guys end up making the roster going into opening day of next year, you have allowed yourself more outs with the bullpen there. So that I can understand. But Connor Thomas is on your 40-man roster. Yeah, He's available to you. And there, he's not even built up as a starter right now because there, he's coming back from injury. There are no, There's nothing restricting you from making that kind of a move. Why is Connor Thomas not here, but Suarez is, or Casey Lawrence is? That's the one specifically that I, I it just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't at all. And sending down Guillermo Zuniga today in favor of somebody that's coming up and not sending down one of those other two names that I just mentioned, that also just doesn't make sense to me. You don't need 12 different long relievers. And if you find out that you need those guys on a whim, guess what? You can send them through waivers. They're going to clear because they always do. And you're going to be able to get them again in Memphis. And then two weeks from now, if you need them again, you can call them right back up. But for the time being, let's learn a little something about these young arms that you have developing down at the minor league system that are wasting away right now. You might as well use this to your advantage, and the Cardinals are not doing that well enough right now in my mind. Coming up next, let's get into some NFL quick hitters here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 
right, let's dive into some NFL quick hitters alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll get into the junk drawer in about 10 minutes or so. But let's start with a ranking that came out earlier today on the best slash worst divisions in the NFL going into the 2023 season. The worst divisions will not be a surprise to anybody. At seventh on this list, it was the AFC South. Makes a whole hell of a lot of sense. At eighth on the list, it was the NFC South. Again, makes a lot of sense. Whoever you think is winning that division, they're probably going to do so with eight or nine wins. So I get all of that. T-Bone at number one, they had the AFC East. Who would you have going into this season as the best division in the NFL? I, I think the AFC East is the right answer there, number one. Because Now, granted, New England, like they have them as .3 in their FPI projections. Yeah, New England stinks. Like They're one of the worst fourth-place teams in football, in my opinion. Yeah. But when you look at the Buffalo Bills and the New York Jets and the Miami Dolphins, if all those teams stay healthy, that's going to be a three-way battle for a top of that division throughout the season. I could actually see where the New York Jets could maybe upset Buffalo and win the AFC East. I could even hear the argument from the Miami Dolphins doing that as well with Vic Fangio now running defense for them. I think the AFC East is going to be the most exciting battle in terms of these divisions. And then I think number two, I, I would probably put it at the the AFC North as well. I, I love Baltimore. I think they've got a shot to take down Cincinnati this year in the AFC North. And I think Cleveland and my, Pittsburgh, I'm not as high on Cleveland, but I do think Pittsburgh's a team that could be somewhat of a surprise this year. I do think Kenny Pickett's the quarterback of the future there. And I think he takes some of the proper steps moving forward this Is year. Is it weird that I don't think there's a single argument to be made other than what their rankings were? I think they got it exactly right. And I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of people, even in our listening audience that like to argue with everything that would disagree with it. Number one is the AFC East. It's the best division in football. Number two is the AFC North. It is deep, and depending on what you think about the Cleveland Browns going into the season, that's the one division I think you could actually put up there with the AFC East. It's like a tier one of those two divisions. After that, the AFC West. Love it. Think that's absolutely correct. NFC East. Same argument that I would make for the AFC West. I would make for the NFC East and that the top team is very clear, and then you've got a bunch of teams that are really solid two, three, four. NFC West at number five, I think that's correct because you have two teams that are good and two teams that are going to be atrocious in that division. NFC North after that because nobody seems to know who the best team is, and then you get to the two Souths. I think that is the definitive list. I don't think that there's any other way to put it this year. I'd agree. I may have put in the NFC West just a little bit higher because I think Seattle and San Francisco are going to be two of the top contending teams in the NFC right there with Philadelphia and Dallas. So I would have maybe heard the argument to put them right around that four range above the NFC East. But yeah, otherwise, I think this list was right on in terms of where they were going to rank these divisions. And I think the... The NFC, I heard them talking about the NFC North and Minnesota maybe being better. I mean, they were they finished with a negative uh, point differential. Yeah, point differential. Thank you. I was thinking runs because of baseball. Okay, buddy. But they finished with a negative point differential last year. Chicago, you don't know what they're doing. And what the hell's Jordan Love in Green Bay? He looked good, by the way. Over the I weekend. don't care. I don't think he's going to be very good. He might not be. If he is, though, we mentioned this last week. I think that's the team that has the biggest gap between the ceiling and the floor. And it all goes back to whether or not he's good. I have no idea what the answer is. The last time that I saw him against the Chiefs, he looked like one of the worst quarterbacks I had ever seen starting a game. But if he's good, possible, I suppose, that team has a pretty solid defense talent-wise, and they've got weapons around him that at least are interesting. And they've got a really good offensive line. So I could see them ending up being better than we expect, kind of similar to what it was last year with Brock Purdy, where it was like, hey, wait, is this guy good? And the answer is you're really not sure because the weapons around him are so good and the coaching is at such a high premium. 
Same thing could be true this year, conceivably, in Green Bay. All right, a quarterback that I did want to talk about a little bit is somebody that we didn't see over the weekend. The Indianapolis Colts made what I thought was a relatively strange decision not to play Anthony Richardson in their second preseason game of the year. He did play in game one and then was named the team starter going into the 2023 season. If there's one issue with Anthony Richardson, who I love, I think he's going to be really good, but there are real questions about whether or not he's going to be good. It's that he barely played in college. Yeah. And now you have decided in game two of the preseason when Patrick Mahomes is playing for the Chiefs, getting extended reps, that Anthony Richardson's not going to go out there and play for your team. I think it was a misstep. I think you should have had him go out there, get the reps with the ones. I know they didn't play a lot of guys with their team. I also think that is a mistake. I think we've gone too far in the nobody plays in the preseason stuff. I think teams aren't prepared for the start of the season in part because of that. I understand in theory what you're trying to do, which is, hey, we don't want these guys to get hurt. Well, what you could potentially be doing is exposing them to more injury risk in the regular season because they haven't played real games at all. Get them a few reps, get out there, go play one, two season series over the course of the game. I think this was a misstep by the Colts. Didn't love it at all. I understand the explanation. I think it was wrong. Yeah, I'm with you. If you have a veteran quarterback like an Aaron Rodgers, a Matthew Stafford, guys that are older that you don't want taking a beating in the preseason, I understand giving them the first two games off. But to have a rookie that, to your point, hadn't played a lot in college and has a very questionable kind of what is he going to be this year, because he could be really good. He could be a guy that could win Rookie of the Year. Or it could be so bad you could be talking about drafting another quarterback next year if you're the Indianapolis yeah. Colts and continuing your trend, by the way, at the quarterback position. I, I can't believe they didn't play him. I, I, I'm i with you. I would have played him in the preseason. I would play him in the next game if I'm the Indianapolis Colts. I think he needs reps. I think you need to get a better idea of what he is. And I know you're not going to answer all those questions in preseason football. But the more reps, the merrier for a rookie like Anthony Richardson. Hell, look at Houston. They've been playing C.J. Stroud in both their games. I think it's a misstep by the Colts as well. So final thing that I wanted to get to here. ESPN put out their must-draft list for fantasy football, T-Bone. And on that list, they included the great Aaron Rodgers, who if you're watching any of Hard Knocks right now, it is basically an infomercial on how much the New York Jets love Aaron Rodgers. And frankly, how much... Aaron Rodgers seems to love being a New York Jet and not being a Green Bay Packer. Oh, he didn't like it there? Apparently he was pretty done by the end, according to every single news report over the last two years or so and Aaron Rodgers' own words himself. So when you think, T-Bone, to your fantasy outlook going into this season, for ESPN, the guy that they say everybody should be targeting, Aaron Rodgers, get him late in your draft quarterback. It's crazy that he's going as late as he is. Who do you want to come out of every fantasy football draft with? It could be a first-round pick. could be a guy that's going in the 15th round. Who do you want on every one of your fantasy teams this year, if you can get them? Well, if I can get him on any team, Justin Jefferson would be the one for me and Cooper Cup. And I don't mean both in the same draft, by the way. But T-Bone I, wants you to pick in the top three, basically. Yeah, <laughs> I, but like if I'm going to go outside of that, I mean, I'm going with the obvious ones. At quarterback, someone that I would take late, and I had him on my team last year, is Jared Goff. I, Goff can put up points in a good offense in fantasy football. He put up good points and put up good numbers when he's in a good offense in real life, too. So Jared Goff's the quarterback for me that if I said, hey, you got a late pick, you need to add a quarterback, or you're just looking for a second quarterback, Jared Goff's a guy. He's going to put up points this year. I mean, it's not always going to be pretty for him in Detroit, but with that offense and the weapons that are around him, 
Yeah, he's going to do really well. And TJ Hawkinson at tight end is another guy to, I would say, try and get. He was awesome when he got put in that Minnesota system last year. In Detroit, he was kind of iffy. He was kind of just stuck in that clog of the mediocre tight ends. He went to Minnesota. His point production went through the roof. So I would say Hawkinson would be a tight end that I would want to target, too. So this is not a sexy name, but I'm leaving a lot of drafts oh, getting God, him. it's Sam Howell. Nope. DeAndre Hopkins. I feel like he's the forgotten man. He played nine games last year for the Arizona Cardinals on a terrible football team. Terrible team. Finished the season with 700 yards in nine games, which is a pace of going for like 1,400 yards over the course of a full season. That would be excellent. That is what he was in his prime. He would be on pace for about six or seven touchdowns last year as well. Again, this is all for a bad team. Well, he went to another relatively bad team in Tennessee, a team that doesn't have a whole lot of competition for targets around him. Traylon Burks is hurt right now, and he hasn't really been great when he's been given opportunities. Who else are they throwing the ball to in Tennessee right now? Chig, their starting tight end? Sure. I mean, I guess. I think they are going to be throwing a ton to DeAndre Hopkins this year, and you can get him mid to late fourth round. You're getting him around the same area that you're getting Drake London or DJ Moore or Terry McLaurin. So, so the alternatives are all on relatively bad teams with a low passing volume as well. I'll take the guy that's been a perennial all pro when he's been healthy for the entirety of his career. Yeah, he's getting a little older. Yeah, he's going to a team that doesn't have a great situation around him. I like DeAndre Hopkins a lot going into this season, given where you can get him and where we previously have been taking DeAndre Hopkins every other year. What do you think of Brandon Cooks? Because he's a guy that I've been kind of on the fence on, but the more I've been like reading up on fantasy football, the more excited I'm getting about Brandon Cooks in that Cowboys offense. I like him. I like him, especially where you can get him. I worry about the competition for targets in that offense because you do have CD lamb. You've got Michael Gallup. They throw to their tight end a lot there. So is he going to be able to get the same volume in Dallas that he got previously with his other stops? That, that would be my one question about him, but I mean, you could get him pretty late in your draft. So yeah. I've got no issues targeting him whatsoever. I think he's a really good player that we forget about because he's been the same guy for like seven straight years. Yeah, I, I really like him as a sleeper candidate to take late in rounds and try and get him as late as possible because he's really good if you have him as a flex possibility. Yeah. You know who else a lot of people are forgetting about, and I kind of forgot about him for a little bit, and he just popped in my head is Calvin Ridley. Coming back from his suspension, didn't play last year, obviously, but when he was playing, he was a pretty good wide receiver. And in Jacksonville, where Trevor Lawrence could use yep. or, you know, reliable guy to consistently throw to, he could be someone that is a little bit of a sleeper. Last one that I'll throw out here. It's another quarterback that we could get to real quick. So everybody seems really high on all the Pittsburgh Steelers passing targets. Pat Fryermuth, tight end that a lot of people like. George Pickens getting a lot of steam this year in your fantasy drafts. So anybody going to take their quarterback? Or are we just forgetting about Kenny Pickett? I don't love Kenny Pickett, but if you're in a two-quarterback league or you need a backup quarterback late in your draft, you can get him around the same area that Kyler Murray is going and where Brock Purdy is going. <laughs> I think Kenny Pickett has a much higher ceiling than either of those two. Purdy's not much of a runner. Kyler Murray, I don't know if he's going to play football say, this who's season. Who's taking Kyler Murray? <laughs> Kenny Pickett had some real success on the ground last year as a scrambler. And if, if you think that the wide receivers and the tight end are going to play well this year for Pittsburgh, Somebody is going to be throwing them the football. That somebody is Kenny Pickett. I think he might be in for a really solid season. He could be this year what Jared Goff was last year. That's in his range of outcomes. And he's got much more value with his legs because he is more athletic than I think people give him credit for. So I would rather have like Kenny Pickett than Stafford, Carr, 
Purdy, Kyler Murray. And those are all the guys that are going kind of in that same range just because the weapons around him are so good. And he's got a chance to be able to put up decent numbers this year. He just yeah. has to score touchdowns. I think last year he had like seven passing yeah, touchdowns. Yeah, he didn't have a lot of passing touchdowns. Uh, yeah, I, I like him. And to your point with his athleticism, if he's running the ball a little bit more and scrambling, it's going to add to that value. So I could see we're in that group that you just read off there, Carr, uh, Murray. He's not going to play this year. Don't don't waste your draft pick. Um, I, I could see where he ends up being the best fantasy value exactly. quarterback. And, and I, I think he's worth a shot late in draft. So I'm in on that one. Kenny Pickett last year finished the season with 250 yards on the ground and three rushing touchdowns. The problem, of course, was that he threw seven touchdowns and nine interceptions in 13 games. It's your tail. He'll improve. It's not what you want. They have to improve the touchdowns for him. And if they do, they they had the second fewest touchdowns scored last year. The Steelers did. The only team that was worse offensively when it came to scoring touchdowns was the Houston Texans. So obviously have to improve in that regard. Coming up next, let's dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's dive into the junk drawer. Guys, I was always concerned about uh, destination weddings, right? Because the idea of going makes a lot of sense until one thing goes awry. You forget something at home, right? Inevitably, you're going to end up, especially as the groom, oh no, I forgot my ring, right? Like oh no, did. I forgot my tie that I was supposed to wear, and that's 3,000 miles away. We're in Hawaii. My stuff's all in St. Louis, right? Well, it didn't quite go that poorly for this couple from Boston, but something went horribly awry just days before a gentleman was set to marry his fiance. So, T-Bone, after years of wedding uh, planning... Donato went to go get his passport. Okay. And what he found instead was a shredded up piece of paper that their dog had gotten into. Again, just days before they were going to end up going on what was supposed to be a destination wedding to Mexico. Wait, can't you... I have a follow-up question about the passport. Can't you get a passport figured out pretty quickly i do not believe so nope uh with no appointments available in the new england area to try to get a new passport and time running out quickly the couple started reaching out to lawmakers they sent out an email to their congressman they got in touch with their senator but ultimately it came down to the state department and the passport office trying to stay positive they are hopeful that they'll be able to pull off the wedding abroad Quote, I'm not allowing myself to even think about plan B. There is no other option. We are going to go on Friday one way or the other. We don't have a follow up on this yet. (laughs) We'll see what ends up taking place. Can you imagine, dude? Oh, my wife would kill me. My wife would absolutely kill me if I didn't have my passport in a place where the dog could potentially like, oh, Mm -mm. no, sir. Uh, I can't imagine that. I, 
one, why do you have the passport where the dog can get it exactly. would be my question. Um, but two, like, it's one thing to forget, like, the tie that you mentioned or the ring. Like, well, maybe not the ring. The ring's probably a bad example in this scenario. But it's one thing to forget the tie or forget something that's, sure, it's a problem that you don't have it. But it's not, like, the massive problem to where your wedding is going to be postponed. This? Oh, my gosh. I This is ground for not marrying this dude. I told the story last week when it was the week before our wedding, me and me and Kara, my brother-in-law had a friend. They were taking a trip the week before over to Europe to go to a bunch of um, Premier League games. They had like four different games nice. that they were going to go to over the course of a week. It was going to be an incredible trip. And I was jealous of it, obviously, because that sounds amazing. The week before, one of his buddies dropped out. They couldn't make it. And he says to me, hey, if you can get your flight over, all of the rooms are paid for. All of the tickets to all of these games are paid for. All you got to do is get the flight over. You're more than welcome to come with us. If it was in the middle of COVID and there was a whole lot of stuff going on where, like, if I got COVID while I was there, I couldn't come back yeah, for the wedding. There. I so badly wanted to try to make it work. But I just thought to myself, like, if I get COVID and I can't come back and I miss the wedding, my wife will never forget me. Yeah. Like th- that wedding will not take place because my wife will not marry. Yeah, me. exactly. <laughs> it will be the end of our relationship forever. Yeah, that was the exact thought that I had was you would not be getting married. You would I, I wouldn't have had to worry about getting you a gift for your wedding because there would not have been a wedding yeah. had you gotten COVID over in England. I, you made the right call. I, I think I did. You think? Oh, buddy. Nobody on the trip got oh. COVID. So I probably could have made it work. But the oh. one, even if there was a 1% chance of me not getting oh, back. I'm not even referring to how the results were. The fact that you just said at 103 on BK and Ferrari, I think I made the right decision. I oh, I hope Kara's not listening. I'm, Coming up next. I'm sorry, Kara, if you are. We've got some news on who was sent down to make room for Drew Rom tonight on the Cardinals roster. We'll tell you who that player is and the Cardinals decision that is upcoming with Dylan Carlson. We'll talk a little bit about that coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. So earlier today, we were talking to Katie Wu about the Cardinals' decision that they have to make today in order to activate Drew Rom, who's expected to make his Major League debut this evening as the starter for the Cardinals. Drew Rom, for those of you that aren't familiar, he was one of the players that the Cardinals got in return for Jack Flaherty from the Baltimore Orioles in that trade at the deadline. Rom has been very good so far down in AAA, 18 strikeouts in 11 innings and his two starts in AAA for the Redbirds. So he's coming up today. That means you've got to make a corresponding move. One of those moves could have been optioning Andrew Suarez or Casey Lawrence, two long relievers that are currently in the bullpen. Instead, the Cardinals chose a different move. Oh, yeah? what they do? They have just announced their move for today, according to John Denton. The Cardinals are optioning Guillermo Zuniga down to AAA and they will be calling up Drew Rom. Didn't like his swing and miss stuff. So here's where I stand on this. I would have gone personally with Andrew Suarez. He would have been the one that I would have sent down. He has no future here in St. Louis. He has an option year, so you don't have to send him through waivers. He would have been the guy that I would have personally sent through. One of the main reasons why he threw 64 pitches on Saturday 
which means he's probably unavailable in any of these three games out in Pittsburgh. The next time you'll be able to use him is on Friday night when you've got Miles Michaelis on the mound. It would be a surprise if you need him in that game with Miles Michaelis on the mound. So we're talking about not needing Suarez, most likely until Saturday at the earliest. So you're basically going the next week or so without utilizing Andrew Suarez, and you're just willingly keeping him on the roster for the possibility that you'll need him at some point next week. Okay, fine, whatever. He has an option. You could have just sent him down. Again, you don't have to waive him. The other guy you could have gone with is Casey Lawrence. Now, he's a little more difficult. You would have had DFA him. You got to do the waivers game. But he also is available probably as soon as tonight. And if you need a long reliever for Rom, for Wayno, for Libby, any of those three, you can use him. So I understand the value in having a long reliever one of the next three nights. I would have just kept Guillermo Zuniga to find out what he is finally at the major league level. But instead, they did the same thing with him this time that they did last time they called him up. They called him up, gave him one opportunity. He showed the velocity that we've all seen. He's got swing and miss stuff that we all crave. And we've seen now that there are real changes, real differences between pitching at the major league level with the strike zone and pitching at the minor league level. That clearly affected Zach Thompson. It clearly affected Dakota Hudson down in AAA, and it may be affecting Guillermo Zuniga, who has really good stuff that plays at the top of the zone. Let's find out what that looks like, man. This guy could be in a similar spot to Jojo Romero next year, where Guillermo Zuniga could play into the Cardinals' sixth or seventh inning plans. He could be one of the arms that you're going to sign this offseason, but instead of learning if that is the case right now, They decided, no, 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 we got to keep around Casey Lawrence. We got to keep around Andrew Suarez. It just doesn't make sense to me. I know what their argument is. I disagree with it. I think it is a faulty logic. I think you have plenty of innings in that bullpen right now, especially when I look over the weekend. John King, Jojo Romero, Andre Palante, Giovanni Gallegos all appeared one time. Drew Verhagen did not appear in that series over the weekend. Zuniga pitched once. Suarez threw 90 pitches over the last three days, and that basically was the entirety of your bullpen for the most part. James Nail was a guy that really threw a bunch of pitches. It's just, this is not the way that I would go about it. I disagree with the way that they're doing it, but clearly they disagree with me. So what are you going to do? Yeah, I I would like to see Zuniga up here still because every time that we've seen him, he's been impressive. I mean, his first outing, and I don't remember who it was against, but he had the swing and miss stuff. His outing against the Mets, I know he gave up a run, but really only one ball was really hit hard off of him. That was the Alonzo double. Otherwise, two strikeouts and the other hit was just a little blooper into left field. Like, I can see where Zuniga would be a guy that, to your point, could pull off what Jojo Romero has done. Or what Luis Garcia did a couple of years ago. Yeah. Like, he could be that arm in your bullpen. And, and you don't have a lot of guys like that outside of this bullpen. I mean, Helsley's that guy, but he's hurt. You got Giovanni Gallegos, who's got some swing and miss stuff. But who's the other righty with a lot of electric stuff? You don't really have one. Verhagen's not that guy, and he's not going to be here next year. So, I, and to your point of what the Cardinals are doing with the long relievers and eating innings, just make Palante a long reliever. I mean, you could essentially do that. I mean, he threw 45 pitches back on August 11th, 10 yep. days ago. So that could be your second long reliever if you truly believe that you need two of them. Yeah, I'd much rather see Zuniga because there's some untapped potential there too that that if you can find a way to hone in his uh, where he's been throwing a lot of balls down in the minor leagues and walking a lot of guys, if you can find a way to hone that in at the major league level, 
you're talking about an electric right-handed arm that could come out of that bullpen and be in the sixth, seventh inning role potentially for you next year. It's just we- really weird. Their handling of him has been strange. I mean, all offseason, they acted as if they were very excited about him. And then we saw what he did in the World Baseball Classic, which was, you use the word electric. That is exactly the word that I would use to describe how he performed in the World Baseball Classic. And then you got into the regular season. There were some struggles for him down in the minors. So it was understandable as to why they were cautious with him, to say the least. He gets called up, strikes out Mike Trout, and then immediately gets sent down to the minors. And then over the weekend, looks fine. I I would say it looks solid. The stuff clearly plays at this level. But the results were just okay. And then immediately, once again, gets sent back down to the minors. It I don't think it sends a great message to your minor league system when guys that you signed in late July are immediately getting these big league opportunities. That's money that's being passed over for some of your minor league players. That's opportunity that's being passed over for some of these minor league players. I just don't think it sends a great message from a human perspective. And that's not even to mention competitively what it means for you both down the stretch and going into next year. I think it's a missed opportunity. I think this team has really struggled to figure out how to adjust to not to games that don't matter. I think they are they are treating them almost too much as games that don't matter and not enough as opportunities. They're doing it on the position player side of things, but they're not giving those opportunities the same opportunities, especially in their bullpen to the young guys. I think they're underestimating how much of an overtaking the the bullpen's going to be this offseason. That's I one of too. my fears going into this this offseason is they clearly acknowledge how much they need to improve their rotation. John Mozeliak said very firmly and then corrected somebody in the media when suggested otherwise, he knows they need three starters going into this offseason. I don't know what their plans are in the bullpen going into the offseason, and that was not as much of a problem for the Cardinals this year as the rotation maybe, but it was up there, dude. That would probably be like, second on my list of biggest issues that the Cardinals had. Oh, I agree with you 100%. It's one of their bigger issues, but I I think the way they're going to go about it, and I I totally agree with you, I think they're going to overlook the issues they have in their pen. I think Helsley, their plan will be Helsley, Gallegos, and JoJo Romero. That'll probably be your 7-8-9 combination. They're probably going to bank on a Wilking Rodriguez bounce back and Packy Naughton coming back to support Hmm. this bullpen. Two guys that are on the 60-day IL right now. Maybe Palante's in the plans. Maybe Thompson's in the plans. I don't know what the future holds for Zach Thompson and what they're going to do with him. But that's just five guys that I named right there. And three of those five, I don't really feel confident about having... Oh, John King, too. I forgot about John King, who's been really good since he's been here. So that's six names. Out of those six names that I just said, I don't know if I'd trust any of them. Like JoJo Romero, this is the first time it's really clicking for him at the major league level. Am I going to buy in on a reliever, the most volatile position in baseball, that JoJo Romero is going to be this guy for me next year? Am I going to trust Ryan Helsley, who continues to have setbacks in his rehab starts, complaining of general soreness again after his previous outing? Giovanni Gallegos, as much as I've trusted him, there are signs that it is starting to crack with him. John King, a guy that's just now getting an opportunity and looks good in his, what, four innings for the Cardinals? Am I really going to buy into four innings of baseball that doesn't matter like there are way too many question marks around this bullpen and I think they're like you said I think their sole focus is going to be well if we fix the rotation the bullpen will figure itself out and I don't know if I would operate that way if I'm the Cardinals somebody from the 636 makes a fair point because I I think anybody that listens to this show knows that I agree with this theoretically speaking I would personally be disappointed in the front office if they went out and spent big on the bullpen bullpen performance is highly volatile and spending big on relievers often fails Totally agree. I would not go do that. 
I would go spend in the low to mid-range reliever market. Guys that are getting one year, seven, eight million bucks. Get a couple of those guys. Go get yourself whoever this year's version is. I haven't looked enough into the bullpen market to be totally candid with all of you. Whoever this year's version of Matt Morris and then whoever this year's version of Andrew Chafin is. Go get guys that have been super consistent, that have trend lines that are still positive, that aren't going in the wrong direction and haven't been overly used over the last few years. Go get those guys on a one-year deal worth, you know, combined 12 million bucks, two of them. That That is the way that I would go about it. But my fear is they're going to say, well, we've got a bunch of these guys that we don't know a whole lot about. Let's see what they can do early in the season, and then we'll figure it out as we go along. Well, if you're going to do it that way, let's find out about them now. Yeah. Let's go find out what they can do for you today instead of having to wait until spring training of next year and then playing the roulette of the early season performances in 2024. That's where I... I have a problem with what they're trying to operate or how they're operating right now. Now, I will say if you're going to have one position that you're going to leave thin, the bullpen, I I don't mind being that position because those guys are always available once you get to the deadline. Look at how many relievers were shopped this year at the trade deadline. Hell, Stratton got you a decent return and part of the Montgomery deal. So there's always a problem, though. They're expensive. Even for mid-range relievers, they they go for a ton at the deadline. But if you're going to go thin in one spot, I would understand the thought process around the bullpen. You hope you find somebody internally that you weren't expecting that pans out. Then if you got a thin bullpen, you go and add to it at the deadline. And like that market that you're talking about that you're playing in, you're looking for kind of you're you're looking higher up but if you're going to look even sm- further down the list you're looking for your Verhagen deal that works is what they're going to be looking for this offseason two years right around five and a half million dollars can you find somebody that ends up playing the role that you thought Drew Verhagen was going to have which is a arm that could be potentially high leverage or at least middle endings for you out of your pin that's got some swing and miss stuff coming up next we're going to play a game of in or out three one four three nine 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 six four six is the air comfort service tax line I've got one to start things out in or out would you bring back Paul DeYoung next year as a utility infielder to back up Mason Wynn? We'll talk about Ugh. that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Come on, man. Are you in or are you out? It's in or out with PK and Ferrario. This year, not Alex. It just doesn't feel right. 3143999646 is the air comfort service text line for in or out. You give us a scenario. We'll tell you if we are in or out here on BK and Ferrario. T-Bone filling in this week for Alex. We've got Grant Francis in with us as well. I'll start us out with the first one for you guys. In or out. The Cardinals should sign Paul DeYoung this offseason to a major league vet minimum deal in order to play backup shortstop for them next year after he was DFA'd over the weekend by the Toronto Blue Jays. Out. Out. They should not bring back Paul DeYoung. Look, I they had they were able to fold in when they had their chance to get a prospect back in return for Paul DeYoung. There's no need to bring him back. What you saw in Toronto is the likely outcome of what he is as a major league player. He's just too inconsistent and I, I don't want him when I have a potential Tommy Edmond as the backup shortstop who if that's if you are truly questioning Mason Wynn at the end of the year Tommy Edmond should not be traded this offseason you should hold on to him to be the backup shortstop in case of this scenario so you don't have to bring back a Paul DeYoung so I'm out on this I, I don't see a reason to bring back Paul DeYoung yeah I'm on the same wavelength I mean there's a reason why he got DFA'd in Toronto 
I don't see a reason to bring him back. He was like four for 43. Yeah, yeah. that'll do it. Plus, uh, just re-sign Taylor Motter. Cardinals love him. Bring him back. Come on. Man. Back up infielder. So, did you see the play he made this weekend? <laughs> uh, that was completely unfair for that to have gone down as an error on him, by the way. Yeah, that was a Baker. Was that Baker at first? Yes. Yeah, that was a Baker error. Luke and Baker cannot play first base anymore, guys. Or Major it, League Baseball. We, we can't keep doing this. Luke and Baker is a... I'm still interested and curious on the bat. Oh, boy, his defense over at first. Uh-uh. No, sir, that is not going to work you out for this team. You guys made fun of me for really enjoying a good defensive first base. Paul DeYoung in his 12 starts for the Toronto Blue Jays. Three for 44 with zero walks, 18 strikeouts, one run, and one RBI. Woof. Zero home runs in his entire stretch there. I Zero extra base hits, actually, in his entire time. And you want him back. In the Toronto Blue Jays. Now, here would be my argument for it. If you are even considering this, it is very likely that you traded Tommy Edmund. That would be the case for signing Paul DeYoung. And the only role that Paul DeYoung would have is basically your Taylor Modder next year. You're in the role of you never play unless there's an injury. If Mason Wynn were to get hurt, we need a capable defensive replacement who can go out there and play shortstop for us every day for two weeks. That would be Paul DeYoung's role. So if that ends up happening, if it starts out with Mace or with Tommy Edmond getting traded for back end start or something like that, I would then say I am in. I am in on re-signing Paul DeYoung for a minimum deal where he knows exactly what his role is and he's going to be as a backup to Mason Wynn starting on opening day. I would be in on that. And then you trade him for another prospect at the deadline? There you go. Is that what you're doing? T-Bone, what do you got? In or out, the Cardinals will sign or trade for two bullpen arms this offseason. I'm in. I think they know that they have to improve this bullpen. I, I don't know what caliber of player those guys will be. I could totally see them running it back with like JoJo Romero, Gio and Helsley as their back-end bullpen arms. So maybe it's more in the Chris Stratton mold where they find guys Help bring back sixth, Chris Stratton. seventh inning, something like that. Yeah, I could. I would totally be fine with that, honestly, or somebody equivalent to him. I could see them doing that, but I think they know they've got to add a couple of bullpen arms this offseason. Yeah. I just don't know how good those arms are going to be. I'm in, too. I think they're trading for one and signing one, and I don't have like specific names on the top of my mind because there's so many free agent relievers that'll be out there, but Nobody remembers. We got Jojo, or the Cardinals got Jojo Romero for Edmundo Sosa, who's been really good for Philadelphia and was a really solid, like, utility player for the Cardinals. Can you get something like that for a Juan Yapez, Tyler O'Neill, someone of that ilk? Or even if you trade one of your catchers, maybe you trade Andrew Kisner as the backup catcher to go get a reliever. I could see that, and then you go sign somebody for kind of one year, $5 million. I think that's how you kind of try and reshape this bullpen on the fly. Could you see the Cardinals maybe trying to do a trade where they do multiple things at once? Like they get a starter and they get a bullpen piece at the same time. Like that's where I could see that trade uh, side of things coming in. Then you go out and sign another one. So yeah, I'd say I'm in on this as well. Grant, do you have anything for in or out today? Yeah, in or out, Robert Thomas sets a career high in goals this upcoming season. His previous career high is 20. That was not this past season, but the year before. And he had 18 this past season. I'm going to say out. I'm going to say, really? I, I think he goes into this season is I think he is a 15 to 20 goal scorer. I think that's what he is. 
the thing that will be interesting to watch with him is the assist numbers. And that is mostly a reflection of who he's on the ice with. I think there have been times in the past where the Blues have not been able to get the most out of Robert Thomas as a distributor because he hasn't been put in the position to succeed as a distributor. He needs guys that are proven goal scorers. One guy that I would love to see him with going into this season, I, I would love to see what he looks like with Yaku Brana on one side of his wing. Like either him or Kairu, I feel like at all times he should have one of those two on his wing because he is going to set those guys up better than anybody else on this team can. So I'm going to say out on him scoring more than 20 goals this year, but I do think there's a real chance that he gets to 60 plus assists and said it's a new career high in that regard. Yeah, I'm out as well because I think he's going to be looking to be more of a distributor than he is a goal scorer. And I I think he's got the shot. I mean, I think you're right on where you said 15 to 20 goal scorer. I think he's got the shot to be a 25 goal scorer. I think his shot's great. He just doesn't utilize it enough. And he's always looking to pass. He's a pass first player. I could see where he would set the assist number because he's going to be on the line with Kairou or Vrana, as you said, which I like that idea. And he's potentially going to have uh, Booch on his wing as well. So, like, I like I like what he'll be set up to do in terms of the assist category. He just doesn't shoot the puck enough to where I would say that he's going to set a new career high. So I'm out on this. The reason why I'm going in on it is because of what you just said. One of the focal points for him last season towards the end of the year was to shoot the puck more. And when he did, he had success with it. And the fact that he was only two goals away this past season from his previous career high, I think he's going to do it. I think he's going to get at least 21 this upcoming season. Let's get to some of yours from the text line. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Guys, in or out, the Cardinals sign Aaron Nola this offseason. I'm going to say in. I He seems like the guy that makes all the sense in the world for the Cardinals. Innings eater. You can convince yourself that the reason his numbers are kind of bloated this year, and I think he starts tonight against San Francisco and Philadelphia, is because one, he's in Philadelphia, and two, Philadelphia's defense isn't that great. He just screams Cardinals. I, I could see where they jump the market to sign Aaron Nola and try and make him the first pitcher off the board. So I'm in on this. I think they're going to sign him. My first reaction is out just because of the Cardinals past and them hmm. not signing the big fish in the offseason, but the Cardinals are also very rarely in this spot where – They've had a very bad season. They need to go out and sign a big fish. So uh, I'm going to go in on this just because though the Cardinals don't do this often, they're also not in this position very often. I think I'm in. I think he's going to be their top target. I think they're going to look at it. They're going to say, this is a guy that goes out there every fifth day and starts for his team. He posts. That's super important. It's something they haven't been able to say about most of their starters in recent years. And maybe most importantly, I know everybody talks about his stuff, like taking a step back. Dude, his stuff is better than anybody on the current Cardinals staff. Well, that's kind of a low bar. Yeah, they don't say much. Fair. I think his stuff plays about as well as anybody in the current market. I mean, Blake Snell, yes, he does have better stuff. He's got more swing and miss. He doesn't know where it's going. Have you guys seen his walk rate? I mean, if you think that the Cardinals were frustrated with some of the walk rates from their starters this year, oh boy, go look at what Blake Snell's done. And when it goes for a lefty relief or a lefty starter with a high walk rate who gets by with a strikeout stuff, it's going to go fast. I mean, it's going to be tough to watch at the end of Blake Snell's career. Maybe that's not for another five years and it ends up working out on the next contract for Snell. Or maybe it goes in two years and the last three years of that deal are brutal for whoever he signs with. The Cardinals are pretty cautious with this stuff. They want to minimize their risk. So even on a big-time contract, I think they're more likely to go the Aaron Nola route, and they know they have to improve this roster specifically with the rotation. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Last thing here, T-Bone, in or out, the Cardinals are going to go into next season with Dylan Carlson as their starting center fielder. 
I'm out on this. I, I think the starting center fielder next year is probably going to be Lars Newbar. I think th- because I, I think they're going to put him in center and they're going to have Walker and right and then the left fielder they'll figure it out. It'll either be Burleson or it'll be uh, Brandon Donovan if his arm's good to go. Yeah. And I would I'm assuming it's going to be at that point. He's already going down to Florida to start his rehab. Um, I Carlson's got to hit right-handed pitching to be a starter, and I he hasn't proven to do that. And I know the Cardinals are going to use the injury excuse for him this year. I read off his numbers earlier. He wasn't hit when he was healthy before this ankle injury popped up. So. I, I think the only thing we've learned about Carlson since the ankle injury was announced is that he's not going to be traded this offseason. He's going to go into the year as the fourth outfielder. Maybe they bring him on as defensive substitution late, but I don't think he's the starting center fielder going into next year. I'm out. I could see them using spring training as uh, Dylan Carlson's way of seeing if he's going to be that starter because like, obviously he has to get back to his health. And the first opportunity you're really going to get to see that will be in spring training. So I think a lot of it might hinge on what he does at spring training. I'm out on this as of today. I reserve the right to change this opinion, depending on what happens with Tommy Edmond. If they end up trading Tommy Edmond, I could totally see them going into next year with Donovan as the super sub where he plays a little bit of everything, right? One day he's in right field. The next day he's at first base, third, et cetera. And they'll have Dylan Carlson as the de facto starting center fielder because of his defensive value. And they say, you know what? We were so bad defensively last year. We have to improve that. Carlson's the way that we go about it. Otherwise, we have to go to the market and sign a guy for 10 million bucks to be able to be a defensive player. Well, we've already got that guy here. His name's Dylan Carlson. He's solid defensively in center. Newton left, Walker in right. And you see what that looks like to start out the season. I could see them going about that way. But... This all comes back to Tommy Edmond. I think Tommy Edmond is really the key to the offseason for the Cardinals in a lot of different areas. If you trade him, it means you have to figure out what you're doing as a backup shortstop because you don't really have one in the system right now. You don't have a guy that could be uh, the next version of the guy they traded to the Phillies. I'm blanking on the name right now. Edmundo Sosa. You don't have that player down there. So who can play that role for you? Can you go sign somebody for two million bucks this offseason to be that guy? Probably, but you got to go do that. I think Tommy Edmond holds a lot of cards in terms of what they decide to do position player wise this offseason. Do you think he's getting traded this offseason? I don't. I, I don't think they. I think he's more valuable to the Cardinals because of what you just said than what he would get on the market. Forty eight hours ago, I would have said probably not because I thought Dylan Carlson was going to be the guy that they traded. I think they've got one roster spot, either Carlson or Edmond, that's probably getting dealt this offseason for something pitching wise. Well, Carlson, if he's going to undergo this surgery on his ankle, he's going to have no value whatsoever on the trade market. You can't trade him. So in that scenario, I could see another team viewing Tommy Edmond as a starting caliber shortstop for very cheap with multiple years of club control. And the Cardinals then say, okay, we could get a solid back end starter for Tommy Edmond. Let's go sign a backup shortstop. We'll retain everybody else on our infield and we'll go sign the top end starting pitchers that we need. And Edmund gets us the back end starter that we're craving to get that third starter out of the three that they're talking about. So I, two days ago, I would have said definitely not today. I don't know because of the Dylan Carlson news with his ankle. Yeah, see, I'm not changing some things. I'm not sure he's getting dealt because I, I think, I think he's more valuable to the Cardinals because of those positions that we said he can play shortstop. He could go to center field. If you had to, he can play second base if he had to. And I just think when you look at him, like, I don't know how much value he's going to have on the market. Sure, he's a super utility guy, but he's below league average as a hitter. And I don't know what you're going to – can you get a cost-control arm for that? I I don't know because a lot of teams love cost-control arms. Why? Because pitching's at a premium in Major League Baseball. So I don't even know if you can get a 
starting caliber, a back-end starter for that. I wonder if that's where they have to look at the catcher kind of clog that they've got and say, Possible. okay, we've got Avon Herrera, who we like, and nobody's really seen him at the majors. He's only been up for a cup of coffee. People can dream on that and trade cost-control pitching for Avon Herrera or even Andrew Kisner, who's proven he could probably be a starting catcher on another team. Yeah, I, I think it's possible. One of those, either the outfield, Burleson, Carlson, Edmund, or catcher, it's probably where they end up going for to, to trade from their surplus for a starting pitcher or a reliever going into the offseason. For T-Bone and Grant, I'm BK. Coming up next, speaking of dreaming a little bit, do Mizzou and Illinois fans have reason to dream? And not according to The Athletic. We'll let you hear what they have to say about them next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kiley. Alex is out this week. He'll be back next week. He's hanging out up in Michigan with the fam this week. T-Bone, next week will be the start of the Mizzou and Illinois football seasons. And we've been talking over the last week or so about if it's possible for both teams' fan bases to dream a little bit on what this year could be. For Illinois, maybe that means another eight-win season. The first time they would have back-to-back eight-win seasons in, like, 20 years. Uh, For Mizzou... (laughs) It means a possibility of getting back to respectability, being added at the top three or so in the SEC East, which it's been a hot minute since we've been able to say that about the Tigers as well. There's a lot of people nationally that agree with those scenarios for Illinois and for Mizzou. The Athletic last week had Illinois as a tier two program in the Big Ten going into this year. And then there was a new piece earlier today on the Athletic where they ranked each of the 133 FBS programs. And T-Bone... They had our squads, for me, Mizzou, for you, Illinois, ranked in the 50s. Oh, ridiculous. They had Illinois at 52 on this list. KU, an early season opponent for Illinois, who I've told you all along, it's going to be a tougher game than you expect it to be. They have them at 53. Oh, boy. And behind the Jayhawks, they have the Missouri Tigers at 54. At least we're higher than Mizzou. And much like Illinois, Mizzou has an early season opponent that is right behind them at 55 on this list, they have the Memphis Tigers, who are playing against the Mizzou Tigers in St. Louis early on in the season. T-Bone, I think they're too low on both Illinois and Mizzou on this list. I think it would be a legitimate shock to me if both of those teams finished that low. I think they're both borderline top 25 to 35 programs going into the season. We'll see if they finish that way, but with what we know right now information-wise... I think they are much closer to Arkansas, who they have rated at 33, or NC State, who they have ranked at 38. And they're, I think, both better than Florida, who they have ranked at Florida or at 40. That's the range that I think both of these teams should be uh, in right now. I, I think 50-plus is ridiculous for these programs. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think they're both definitely top 50 programs, and I think they're sitting – they should be probably in around that 35 to 40 range is where they're at. I, I mean, I trust Illinois to be better than Florida – Honestly, Louisville, too. I mean, they should be higher than UCF, Coastal Carolina, Western Kentucky. Like, I, I think they're definitely a team that should be around the top 40. But, I mean, you mentioned Dream, and it's all going to come down for the Illini. How do they replace – how do they fix the defense coming off of last year? And I don't mean fix. I mean replace the production that they lost on defense. And then what's Luke Altmaier, who just got named the starter, look like? Like, he's the guy that's going to determine their ceiling. Because Tommy DeVito was the perfect get the ball out of my hands as quick as possible. And you can win with that. And you can establish the running game with Chase Brown. 
Luke Altmaier is the guy that can potentially take Illini from a eight win team to a ten win team. Like that's his potential. I think is if he's got the deep arm and they're sealing. If they're if they're expecting seven to eight wins right now. If Altmaier hits and ends up being the guy that they're expecting, I think they're even better than that. I think you're talking about a team that could win the Big Ten West. Like, that's my expectation for Illinois, is be in the race and win the Big Ten West this year. You should have won it last year if you didn't have that midseason kind of debacle where they lost three games in a row. Like, this team should be at least in conversations to win the Big Ten West. And by doing that, I think it puts you around top 40, top 45 programs in the country. So, we're getting some pushback. As you could probably imagine. About both Mizzou and Illinois. Well, that's ridiculous. And I think the reason why is pretty simple. A, Mizzou hasn't been very good recently. And Illinois has been slept on. I'm partially to blame on the Illinois side of things. I I did underestimate what they did last year going into the season. And this offseason, I don't think I've given them the credit that they deserve going into the season. So this one comes from the 618. BK, did you really just say that Mizzou and Illinois could be borderline top 25 teams? You've got to be kidding me. I did. I genuinely believe that they can be this year. For Missouri, for example, they have the vast majority of their production returning on both sides of the football. They've got a legitimate quarterback competition that is going to take place even going into the season. If that ends well, I might be low by saying it's a borderline top 25 team. I'm serious. Top 10? I don't, that's, no. No. Oh, okay. But like well. 15 to 25 could be the range that you're talking about for Mizzou where they win eight or nine games this year. I'm not projecting that. I think that the quarterback play this year for Mizzou is going to be average. And if you simply get average quarterback play, I think they're like the 30th best team in the country going into the year. It doesn't take a lot to be the 30th best team in college football. That's like eight, maybe nine wins in a good season for the topper level or the upper level of college football. I think the same thing can be true for Illinois. Their defense was elite last year. Coming into the season, it will be a surprise if they're not a top 20 unit defensively again this season. When you have a top 20 defense in college football, man, Iowa's been making a living out of this for years. They win eight games every year by simply having a borderline elite level defense. If you can do that, Wisconsin's been doing it as well. I think Illinois can win eight games again this year. So it really comes down to... Can they sustain the defensive play while getting slightly improved quarterback play? If you can do those two te- two things for both of those schools, yeah, we're talking about, yeah, borderline top 25 type of, type of seasons. Yeah, and I can see where people would be a little bit lower on Missouri in terms of what we're talking about here because their, their schedule is a lot tougher than what Illinois is. I mean, you got Kansas State, who's early on in the year at 16. You've got LSU, who's going to be good again. You've got to go to Georgia and Tennessee, like— that feels like at least three guaranteed losses and maybe the four. And we'll see what Kansas State is. I think that's a toss-up game. And, and so their schedule is tougher. So I could understand being a little bit lower on them. Illinois, though, I mean, I think their toughest game is Penn State and maybe Kansas. I know Wisconsin and Iowa are ranked, but I, I don't really have that much faith in Wisconsin and Iowa. I, I think we're looking at by the time Illinois is done playing Penn State on September 16th, they don't play another top 25 team on their schedule. Like I think that is in the realm of possibilities. I think that's what happened last year was – Michigan was the only top 25 game they had down the stretch of the year. So I think Illinois has a chance to reach the ceiling that we're talking about. Mizzou, I'm a little bit more skeptical. Get out of here. Just just because their schedule. I mean, look at that schedule. We put Illinois in the SEC. I can guarantee you I'm not sitting here going, nine wins, Big Ten West, here we come. Uh, So that's the only thing that I would say. But I think both teams, as you said, it it just comes down to can they get average quarterback play. Like I I like this Luke Altmaier that Illinois is going to be starting. I don't know what to expect, though. He's never been a starting caliber quarterback. And then you saw what Brady Cook was last year. 
He, he was an he average quarterback. Throwing, he had one workable shoulder, and it was the non-throwing arm. Yeah. What does he look like when he has an actual usable shoulder to throw the football with? I, I think pretty decent. Even last year, when his arm was, like, hanging on by a thread, Still he, was a, he was a league average quarterback last year, which is fine. You can win with that, especially if that league average quarterback comes with legs that can be a threat on the ground. So I think both of these teams can be better than a lot of people are giving them credit right now. I'm going to be an optimist when it comes to both of the local college football teams, which has never gone poorly when we're talking about Mizzou or Illinois. You've never been kicked in the nuts because you were optimistic about either of those two teams. Don't tell me otherwise. Coming up next, we'll hit the rewind here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan. Featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. If you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101 ESPN app is where you go to find it. It's all presented by Dobbs, Tire, and Auto Centers. You can also check it out on YouTube at youtube.com slash 101ESPNSTL. So the Cardinals are having a debut once again tonight. It'll be Drew Rom's opportunity to do exactly that. He is a very unique style of pitcher. He's a crafty lefty in every sense of the word. He throws 90 miles per hour on average. He gets a ton of swing and miss, at least at the AAA level. And in his two starts so far down there, he's gone 11 innings, 18 strikeouts. The results have been remarkable. I have no idea what this is going to look like at the big league level. I can't even tell you guys what to expect. I can tell you who the closest comps are if it ends up being successful, That's Marco Gonzalez, Kyle Hendricks, Dane Dunning. Those are the types of pitchers that we're talking about here. Can he be that? I think that's like 100th percentile outcome. Best case scenario, he becomes Marco Gonzalez. We'll see. T-Bone, I know you're excited to see it tonight as well. What are you expecting from him tonight against a Pittsburgh lineup? I'm expecting him to kind of use that secondary pitch, that slider, to help try and set up his fastball, try and get guys to chase. I think you mentioned that with, I can't remember who the name was that you said, but that's what leads to some of these guys that don't throw hard to have success. They get a lot of the chase. I'm fascinated to know if his swing and miss stuff translates, because I've told you in the office after both his outings in Memphis, it makes no sense to me, (laughs) where this guy's throwing 90, but he struck out 18 in his two outings. So I'm fascinated to see if it works. I'm expecting probably about five innings, five and dive, and hope he gives up about three earned runs or fewer and we'll see if the strikeout stuff translate pittsburgh kind of stinks so i'll say he has like four to five strikeouts tonight if he gets rocks don't make too much of it it's his first start in the don't big worry about it. he'll be back in memphis yeah he'll be right back down in memphis and we'll see what he looks like the next time around for tanner hendrickson and grant francis i'm brandon kiley we'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m the fast lanes coming up next here on 101 espn You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.